Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January 5th, 2015. This is episode 1492 of the Survival Podcast, and it is the first official episode of 2015. So as you're Typing dates or writing dates, you got to remember to put that 15 at the end of the uh, of the date. I don't know if it's just me or maybe it's you guys have noticed this as well. As I've gotten older, uh, going to you know start remembering to do 15 versus 14 or you know way back in the day 91 versus 90, etc. Has actually gotten easier. Um, when I was younger, it, it took me a month before I started you know. Remembering, hey, it's a new year. Now I care less about New Year's Eve celebrations. We did absolutely nothing for ours this year. And, uh, except ate some black eyed peas and sat around and watched TV. And I don't even think we saw the ball come down this year. Um, but yet it's easier for me to remember it occurred. Maybe that's because I'm more in touch with the fact that I'm getting older. Uh, but I think New Year's with opening comments today is something that is a very valuable thing for us all to think about. And that, you know, it is a new year. And I think that it may be a little bit silly, I guess, that we put so much emphasis on the fact that it's January 1 versus December 31. I mean, in the end, it's another day. But we are humans, and as humans, we are beings that inhabit this planet, and we see the seasons pass around us, and we all know that every day... One that day's over is one less day we have to live if we're in touch with our mortality, at least in this human shell. And seasonal markers are important to us. And this annual marker that just happens to be the calendar we use now, what it does for me is it reminds me of that mortality and keeps a fire lit under my ass to get things done. Because indeed, tick-tock, tick-tock, the clock clicks for us all. And I could, there could not be a better day for me to, you know, in, a, in an inaugural show for a new year to remind you that is true. And that's true for you. And that in our lives, we should be on a quest for individual and personal liberty. It's the most valuable thing a human being can have is their liberty. And you'll watch a wealthy man spend every penny he has to avoid being put into a prison. Because it is better to be poor and free than rich and imprisoned. But yet many of us work really hard to build our prison cells around us on a daily basis in the form of debt and obligations to things that we do not want in our lives. And it's incumbent upon me, and, and my role is, is, a, is a person whose mission in life is, yes, self-sufficiency, self-reliance, etc. But that all is built because of my passion for liberty to remind you that when it comes to liberty, you're either on a, a process and a path that's leading you to greater liberty, or through apathy or inaction or wrongful action, you're headed toward less liberty. Liberty is one of those things that's so precious that life does not allow us for a moment to be static in relation to it. If we are taking no actions toward our own liberty, we are indeed losing it. And if we are taking actions toward it, we move toward it, 
and incrementally we can develop greater and greater freedoms in our life. So I wanted to open with that today. Now, before I get into our main topic of today's show, which, of course, is your feedback, and I have a long show for you guys. I've been off for two weeks, a little more, really. I shut down the 23rd of every year and come back the first Monday after New Year's, uh, unless, you know, maybe New Year's lands on, like, a Monday, then I might be back earlier. But with New Year's landing on a, a Tuesday, or I mean, start Thursday this year, It just, I took it all off. So I have a ton of stuff for you guys. Tons of things have come in. Really interesting things that we're going to talk about today. But this is all your feedback. You send emails to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Remember the new thing to put in the subject line, which has been much better for filtering out of spam, is TSPC. TSPC for The Survival Podcast and anything you want after that. And that will make me always be able to find your emails and I won't lose it to the raw spam monster, right? So anyway, before I get into those emails, and I got a ton of them today again, uh, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today, JM Bullion. Hey, you know what? Uh, can I tell you exactly what the economy is going to look like at the end of this year? Uh, this new brand new year? No. Can I tell you uh, which stock to invest in? No, I don't do that. Can I tell you whether I think the economy will be up or down for 2015? I can, and I, I will later this week, actually. But can I tell you exactly what's going to happen? No. Can I tell you what's exactly going to happen over the next 10 years? No. 20? No. Um, can any investment advisor? No. But there is something I can tell you with an absolute certainty. The United States dollar will be less at the end of 2015 than it is at the beginning of 2015. It will be less... In value at, in five years. It will be less, even further less in value in 10. It will be in further less in value in 15. It will be in, in, in even, you know, greater lesser value in 20. And it will always continue on that trajectory as long as we have the current monetary system of fractional reserve banking under the Federal Reserve. The reason I can tell you that with certainty is it's what's always happened, always happened, always happened since 1913 when this system was put in place. And it is the plan. If you ask the head of the Federal, uh, Federal Reserve, not Federal Government, Federal Reserve, who is a private organization, by the way, what the plan is, the plan is to devalue the dollar year after year after year, which makes hedging your investments with a insurance policy in silver and gold a good idea. That's why I keep about 5% to 10% of my net worth at any one time in silver and gold-backed assets and physical silver and gold. I think you should, too, and I think physical should make up a portion of that. And where I get my gold and silver now is Jam Bullion. I cannot tell you a better place to do it for yourself. They're exceptional. They're outstanding. And they have incredible pricing and great service. Minimum order is 100 bucks. Just honest jack with you here, okay? Don't buy one silver dollar, one silver ounce over the Internet. Don't do it. You're going to lose money because the shipping's going to kill you. Don't buy two ounces of silver over the Internet. The shipping is going to kill you. Go to a local shop if you're buying small purchases that small. Five, ten ounces, now you're moving into that territory. $100 minimum order at JM Bullion. Here's why it works. Better pricing than Monix and Atmex. Shipping cost, zero. Free shipping on all orders, but there's a $100 minimum order. And again, I think if you're buying silver and or gold over the internet, I wouldn't buy at a lower price than $100 per order. Anyway, next up, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Guys, you got to have clean water. Uh, I don't worry at all about the quality of water that I'm drinking day to day, even though I'm on a well and even though something could go haywire with this stuff, because every drop of water that goes into my body goes through a Berkey first. And that's in spite of the fact that it's pretty good water to begin with, uh, as far as drinking water. It's, it's alkaline, which is actually good for you, uh, at least at the levels my water's uh, alkaline. Uh, but it's, uh, and it's hard, so it's not good for irrigation, but for drinking, it's really a good quality mineral water we have. 
But I put it through my Berkey because it gives me added assurance and, frankly, it tastes better. Additionally, I know that if there's any kind of contamination that gets in my well, it's likely that I won't ever have to worry about it if it's going through a Berkey. And I also know that because I use a Berkey every day, if we ever need to rely on water sources other than our well, if we ever get an emergency situation, we already have a system set up. We're already ready to go. Check out Berkey water filtration systems. They are amazing. But if you're going to get a Berkey, get it from Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. His website, directive21.com. Again, directive and then the numbers 2and1.com. Let's uh, now look at the year that was the episode. The year, 1492. And I bet all of you can imagine what I'm going to talk about in the year 1492. Christopher Columbus discovers the new world. But there's also some other things that went on. There's some other segments you can read about what else happened in 1492, like Sherry and the Lackeys of Granada. And the Jews are expelled from Spain. Those are both at tspwiki.com, but I am going to read the one you would expect. Columbus discovers the new world, and it might bring some new information to you that you did not know about and some lessons for modern day. Christopher Columbus discovers the new world. Uh, Chris Columbus heads to France to convince the king to finance his voyage across the Atlantic, but Queen Isabella of Spain brings Columbus back. She funds him, but only at a bare minimum. She presses three ships into service against the will of their owners, See, government can do nothing unless it uses the threat of violence at the point of a gun or a sword. And that's what happened here. Just just saying. Back to it. Two 50-foot caravels, the Nina and the Pinta, and a 68-foot carac, the Santa Maria, which Columbus captains. They stop at the Canary Islands, and on September 6th they begin. Trade winds carry them across in five weeks. On October 12th, Columbus spots land, but so does the lookout from the Pinta. Exactly which island it will be lost to history. They continue to San Salvador, Cuba, and then Hispaniola, Haiti, and the Dominican Republic, where the Santa Maria will run aground. The two caravels don't have enough room to take them all back, so Columbus leaves a number of his men on shore to begin a colony. Columbus turns north and makes classic clockwise use of the Atlantic winds. He returns with parrots and samples of wares and presents these to the king and queen. Isabella is delighted. In a few months, she will send him back with a much larger and better financed expedition. Here we go. My take by Alex Shrugged. All the experts said he couldn't sail all the way to China, and they were right, but no one knows it yet. The first voyage is fairly straightforward. It gets worse next year when Columbus returns. He will find all those men he left behind, and a few pieces of cloth will be a few... He all And all he will find of the men he left behind will be a few pieces of cloth. He didn't totally abandon them. The local tribe was reasonably tolerant of these strangers on their land. The problem was that the other tribe was not very friendly. It was called the Cariba tribe, which is why we call that region the Caribbean. Christopher Columbus gave a different name to the tribe, Caribbeus. Uh, they were also, uh, this will also, this is also where we get the English word cannibals. Give you an idea there. So how many of you guys knew that, that Columbus left a colony behind and when they got back a few years later, everybody is dead? I guess if you saw the movie, you, you, you might have known that. But I think a lot of people don't know that. We don't really talk about that very much. Uh, and here's my couple things uh, about this whole thing. One, do, do, do you really think it was the other tribe? I mean, uh, Alex has it in all caps, but do you think maybe the people that were reasonable decided that once the main group was gone, they, they weren't reasonable anymore to these jerks that came and started like infiltrating their, their, their land? And just decided, well, since they're not here to see it, if we kill them all when we get back, we, we tell them whatever they, they want to hear. That's possible. In other words, um, 
Sometimes people will pretend to be your friend only because they know you're stronger than them, and the moment you're weaker, they will strike. This is a lesson to understand about all interactions in humanity. It does not mean not to trust anyone, but it means to be very careful with your trust. Uh, another thing that this makes me think of from modern day is that indeed what I kind of broke in the middle and said is government can do nothing without the threat of violence at the point of a gun or a sword. Please understand that. Please understand that whenever you put your faith in anything the government's doing. Because what happened here is the queen, uh, and this is another very important thing, the most powerful world, word in sales and marketing, no. So Chris Columbus goes to the queen and the king Uh, of, of Spain and says, hey, I want to go do this thing. Will you guys finance it? And they say, yeah, no. And he says, okay, then I'm not going to do it with you guys. I'm going to go do it with somebody else. And as he's on his way, they're like, whoa, 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 come back. It's like buying a car. The guy says, that's the best deal I have. Really? Then I think I can do better elsewhere. I'm going to leave. Whoa, 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 come on back. Right? So the sell being made here is not by the king and queen. It's by Columbus. And it's not their no that was powerful, it's Columbus's no. Instead of continuing to ask you, then I'm going to tell you that no, I'm not going to do this with Spain, I'm going to do this somewhere else. And he gets his money. So that's a, a very, very important lesson for how to deal with negotiations, that if you keep pushing, you generally reinforce the no, and if you're willing to walk away, you generally strengthen the opportunity to gain an alliance, whether it's financial or otherwise. Uh, the next thing is the truth is generally a lot more boring than the story told. Uh, that's something to learn about in dealing with all walks of life from historical inaccuracies to the story that your buddy tells you about when he went fishing. In other words, the, the story we all grew up with with Columbus is his, his crew was terrified they were going to fall over the edge and they were going to throw them off the boat and mutiny. And go. It was five weeks. They just sailed right and found land and it wasn't really a big deal. But that is not exciting. And many times the person that looked like the, uh, the, the most at risk in a story might even be responsible for hyping that portion of it up. How is it that this amazing uh, captain Uh, survived the, the fears of his crew and stood bravely and took them to the new world that they think is the old world on the other side right now. Just saying. So that's another thing to always temper things with. Whether And that could not be more true when you listen to modern news and news-like media. Because a lot of our news today is not news. It's news-like media. There's true journalism, true investigative reporting, And then there's a lot of the stuff we're looking at today isn't even news. It isn't journalism. It is entertainment disguised as news. But either way, just remember that the story you're told is probably more exciting than the story that is. On that note, let's take a look at our prepper scenarios. So I have an interesting prepper scenario for you today, but let's talk about the last Monday prepper scenario we did, which is a couple weeks ago now. And it was you're in a public building and someone starts shooting at people randomly. This is a public building that does not allow concealed carry and you followed the law. How do you assess the threat, attempt to survive, and help others if you can in this situation? Um, this is classic James Yeager in the first movement. Get off the X. Wherever you are, move and move away from the threat. If you stand still, you're more likely to get killed because you're easier to hit. 
and move with a purpose. Don't just run aimlessly. This is where you start using things like cover and concealment. For those who were never in the military, concealment is that what obstructs the view of you but does not stop rounds. It is better than nothing. Cover not only obstructs the view, but is something that is capable of, of, of stopping the penetration of the rounds. And there is this fine line between what is cover and what is concealment because you don't really know, hey, is that wall capable of stopping the rounds that that guy's firing? Because you don't even know what he's firing. Trust me, you're not looking for uh, the caliber, make and model, whatever. Uh, you, you're responding to an immediate threat on your life. But get off the X, move, cover and concealment, seek evacuation from the building. If you can take somebody with you, do it. But do not cower in a corner and do not stand still. Um, if you're in a position where that's not really an option, the only option may be fight. But, I mean, basically in this scenario, your options are run, hide, fight, in that order. And the only reason hide goes before fight is if situationally you can't extract yourself. There's no way out. Then you hide to hope that either the whole thing ends from some other means, responders, another person that is in a position that has to fight, guy runs out of ammo, blows his own brains out, jumps out a window, whatever. Or the hiding is from the aspect of, if I'm going to have to fight, I want the element of surprise. So if I'm going to hide, I can't get out. And a headlong charge at this point is not a good, there's too much distance. And if I try to bridge the distance and, and fight back, or there's two shooters or whatever, I'm probably dead. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna move. I'm gonna use cover and concealment, and I'm gonna look for. I'm still looking for. Actually, I'm always looking for an escape route. But if along that attempt I get into a position where I can't escape, then I'm gonna go into a strategic hiding position where I am not hiding and cowering. I am waiting. Now I am the wounded leopard. Okay, the the guy with the gun still has the advantage. But I'm pissed, I'm scared, and I want his ass dead. And I will do anything and use everything I have to kill him. That's the mentality. Even if he doesn't end up dead, even if he ends up disarmed and I don't kill him, my mentality at that point, if I am to survive, has to be, I'm going to kill this son of a bitch if I have to. That's the only way I'm going to fight hard enough. And it's a sucky situation. And frankly, it's a big part of why... We shouldn't have no gun buildings and no gun zones. But and, and you could say, well, I won't go into one. Okay? Here's the problem with that. Uh, you sometimes have to go to places like courtrooms for one reason or another where you cannot carry. And carrying would be a very high-level felony. And the odds that you will be busted for carrying are higher than the odds you will need your gun. So in that situation, you have to deal with it. Now... The big thing is to have the plan in advance. Where would I go? What would I do? I'm not going to go into that today because that leads us to today's scenario. Remember, come by the blog, episode 1492 today in the comments section. Tell me your response to, to today's scenario. Today's scenario is this. And by the way, I've decided to start recording my Monday prepper scenarios. This will be the first one that goes up on YouTube. So if you're, if you're watching this on YouTube, remember this is just an excerpt 
from one of my podcasts, 1492. You can go to the Survival Podcast and look up 1492 and see everything that's in this one episode. But I want to start getting some more content out on YouTube for the YouTube community. And on the Survival Pod Podcast, we, we talk about things like this. And uh, a lot of you guys that are part of the audience want to share it, but you can't share a whole show. So maybe this is a good segment to share to get people thinking about preparedness from a practical standpoint. So today's prepper scenario, and either comment in the blog or comment in the video notes below, what would you do for this scenario? Here it is today. You're in a large shopping mall. Some sort of panic breaks out. You have no idea why. All you know is that people are freaked out and screaming stuff like, We have to get out of here. The situation is getting worse by the second. Being trampled to death is a real threat. The thing is, you don't know if the internal threat of staying put is real or imagined. You have no clue what's actually gone on, what the danger is. To make matters worse, you're pretty far from any exit at this point. It's not a simple duck out the door for you. And you have a child with you. That's in your care, whether it's your own child or a child that's been trusted to you by somebody else or, or what have you. The child's about 80 pounds, small enough that they're at greater risk of being trampled by someone, but uh, large enough that just like picking them up and grabbing and running with them isn't the easiest thing to do and may really impair you. You have to decide, are you going to grab this kid? What are you going to do with them? Are you just going to grab them by the arm and drag them through? How are you going to handle this? Um, and that's where you're at now. People are panicking. People are rioting. People are screaming. People are scared. People are heading for the doors any way that they can. People are being stepped on, trampled. You want to help people, but you also want to stay alive. you got this little kid you're trying to take care of. Now, you might think my scenario for you today is, what do you do now? That's not my scenario for you today. This is a much more practical thing that you can do every day in case this happens. My question is for you, what steps would you take in advance when entering large public buildings to be best prepared to react to this scenario? In other words, carrying your gun doesn't really help you here. You can't just start shooting your way out. And, you know, you might be going someplace where you can't carry or maybe you don't carry. This is not a direct threat, though. This is an indirect threat, and this is often in disasters the bigger threat. It could be a fire. It could be a bomb threat. Somebody could have just started screaming crazy stuff. There might be no threat. The best thing to do might be to take shelter, let the crowd clear out, and then get out. But if the building's on fire, you could be dead by that. You don't know. So when you go to a mall, especially, or a, any large venue, public venue, a concert, anything like that, There's a situational awareness component that should be being practiced. And when you have a child with you, it takes on a higher level. A, a, a 80-pound child, you know, you're probably going to get a kid that's seven, eight, nine years old, doesn't have the mental capacity to truly be responsible for themselves in that situation. You're responsible for them. And it could be an elderly parent. It could be someone that you've just decided, I can't help everybody, but I can help this one person that's infirm in some way. How do you mentally prepare yourself if things go wrong? What are the steps you take from the moment you walk in the door, the entire time you're there, until you leave, to be best prepared for a situation where things just go wrong? Leave your comments either on the blog, episode 1492, or in the YouTube comments below. 
And again, if you want to know more about things like this, check out the Survival Podcast at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Okay, guys, with that, let's get into your emails to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with uh, TSPC in them. I do have a little quick announcement. Those of you in the MSB know more than I'm going to be able to release today. But I just want you to know, with Perma Ethos in 2015, we're looking to uh, do some real ramping up with our activities in permaculture farming. And we have a done deal for the phase one of a consulting uh, with a client, and it's going to be in cooperation with Mark Shepard's group, RAD, uh, and uh, Mark himself. And that's all I can say right now. I just wanted to kind of tease that a little bit. MSB members, I released a MSB-only video uh, over the holiday, and that is available now. You can go to uh, thesurvivalpodcast.com, and, uh, and and you'll find it, you know, uh, if, if you're listening to this anytime uh, soon, just under this episode. And uh, MSB Vids, M-S-B-V-I-D-S, in the search box at thesurvivalpodcast.com will always pull up all the videos that have been done for MSB only, and the, the, the code is in your... Uh, in your membership area. That's one of the things that I do for MSB members. On MSB, I'm not going to say a lot about it today other than, look, guys, I, it is how I pay the bills around here. And I, I realized something over the holiday. It's that uh, a lot of folks, I think, don't realize, since I say it's 50 bucks a year, which it is, don't realize there's a monthly option. You can pay 5 bucks a month, cancel whenever you want. So I just wanted to point that out because uh, somebody said, wow, thanks for adding that $5 a month option. Uh, it's always been there. It's always been there. Uh, Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, Active Duty, Prior Service. Of course, you guys get a discount. Email me before you join and uh, put service discount in the subject line. Uh, next thing I want to talk about today is uh, something from a really long time ago that somebody emailed me, uh, and I'm really glad that they did. And, and I'll, I'll kind of tell you the background on it here uh, as well. Uh, quite a long time ago, I had Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy of the Doom and Bloom podcast uh, on, the, on our show here as guests. And one of the many times that they were on that we discussed prescription medications and, and ways that you can store prescription medications for grid down scenarios and things like that. We even talked about things like the fact that there's antibiotics available that are for the aquarium industry for fish that are essentially the same antibiotics that uh, uh, doctors prescribe to human patients because they're not going to set up a separate fish antibiotic facility. In fact, they're even in the same dosages. Uh, as far as capsules that are then added to a fish tank, because it's just the easiest way for them to do that. You can buy that, you know, from pet stores. So we talked about all this stuff, and one of the things we talked about was um, the expiration dates on medications and how they're not really what they are. And there's something called the Shelf Life Extension Program. It was originally run by uh, the United States Army, and there was this PDF that I found, but there was a threat from the government that if anybody distributed this PDF, which included pointing to where somebody else had published it, that you could be basically committing a felony, uh, that they did not want this information released or what have you for whatever reason. Um, and, and Bones told us about that. And though I found the PDF, I basically said, here's how you can find it for yourself. I can't link to it. And people got on my case and said things like, you know, you should just do it. You should be a warrior for the truth or whatever. Like, I don't know. You know, if I violate clearly stated law and knowingly do so, um, I'm putting myself, my business, my family, everybody at risk. So I just said, if you want to find it, here's how you can find the PDF. Well, apparently, <clears throat> through freedom of information or whatever, or from a separate study or whatever, JAMA, which is the Journal of American Medical Association, now has 
either the same report or a similar report out in the public domain. So it's safe to do now. But this is about the stability of active ingredients and long-expired prescription medications and how long does this stuff really last. I think you'll be surprised. So I'm going to read some of the article to you, and you can look at the actual tables and things like that and the methods. Debate exists regarding the relative potency of medications beyond their labeled expiration dates. Expired medications have not necessarily lost potency since the expiration date is only an assurance that the labeled potency will last until that time. Clinical situations may arise in which expired drugs might be considered owing to the lack of viable alternatives or financial concerns. Ongoing studies show that many medications retain their potency years after the initial labeled expiration dates. We sought to characterize the potency of some prescription medications that expired decades ago. Expired Eight long-expired medications with 15 different active ingredients were discovered in retail pharmacy in their original unopened containers. They had expired 28 to 40 years prior to analysis. Three tables uh, or capsules of each medication were an analyzed, and each sample tested three times for each labeled active ingredient. No analytical standard for uh, hodotropine could be found, so the ingredient was not tested. Tablets or capsules contents were dissolved and, uh, and sauniated in methanol, reconstituted in analytic, an, anal, an analyst buffer, 10% methanol, and analyzed with liquid uh, chromatograph uh, from Agilent Technologies, time-of-flight mass spectrometer, also from Agilent Technologies, using electrospray ionization in negative and positive polarities. Anyway, let's get to the point, because that no, most of us don't really understand that. We just know they did it. Scientifically, 12 of the 14 drug pounds contested, uh, I'm sorry, I'm off, I guess, from being off so long. 12 of the 14 drug compounds tested, 86%, were present in concentrations at least 90% of the labeled amounts to generally recognize minimum acceptable potency. Three of these compounds were present at greater than 110% of the labeled content. Two compounds, aspirin, and amphetamine were present in amounts less than 90% of the labeled content. One compound, phenicillin, was present at greater than 90% of labeled amounts from one medication tested, but less than 90% another medication tested, indicating that maybe they were stored differently. But here's the interesting thing. So um, I'm just going to read a few of these. Uh, methoprolone was declared at 200 uh, milligrams and was present at 240 Significantly higher. Uh, that just probably means the quality control wasn't there in the first place. Codeine, uh, 7.5 and was measured at 7.4. Uh, Bubitol, 50 and measured at 51.1. Aspirin, here's the surprise to me. Aspirin was at 200 uh, milligrams and was at 2.28 milligrams. So it was basically worthless at that point. Uh, Fenison, uh, 130, uh, declared 142 tested. Caffeine, 40 declared, 51 tested, quite higher. Codeine, uh, at 32.4 declared, 29.3 tested. That would still be quite viable. Phenobarbital, 16.2 declared, 15.2 tested. Uh, another aspirin, um, at 226 declared, 1.53 tested. So again, the aspirin has no ability to last this 28 or greater years. Fentacin, uh, 162 and, uh, at 87.8. So about half of the, uh, you know, declared amount left. Uh, amphetamine was at 5 milligrams and down to 2.2. So amphetamine is not something most of us would be taking anyway. Um, but 
Hydrocodone, 5.0, tested at 5.2. Uh, acetaminophen, which is Tylenol, uh, declared at 250, tested at 249.2, at 28 years minimum age, past expiration date. That's not 28 years old, it's probably five years of, of, of guarantee, and then 28 more years minimum. Uh, caffeine 30 and then uh, at 30.3. So what amazes me is like caffeine and aspirin are on this list with all these prescription meds. Uh, and the one that performed the worst was aspirin. And I have my own theory as to why. I mean, the, the what you're looking at in aspirin is acetosilic acid. And acids have a, com, you know, a tendency over time to oxidize and, and bond with oxygen. And it's probably the case that Something like a, a, a consumer over-the-counter bottle of aspirin. It's probably not the most airtight container, uh, and it's probably the case that because you're looking at an acid there, uh, that it's more capable of breakdown over very, very long term. I did look into some research by Bayer that stated that aspirin stored uh, for five to ten years was quite viable at the end of even 10 years. Aspirin's so cheap, it's one of those things, if you're going to keep it in your preps, you probably should rotate it often. But the, the upshot here is that most medications, long after they expire, are still vi valid. And now you can actually look at the, the evidence for yourself in the study. There'll be a link in today's show notes. And you can you know, consider that in, in your, your long-term medical preps. This next question is kind of complicated, so I'm just going to give some high-level thoughts on it uh, because it's very clear that John, who sent me this, uh, really, really wants an answer because he sent it to me like four times uh, and did so uh, almost all of that four times while I was on vacation. So uh, it must be a really important question to John. I won't say that always works, but in this case it did. Said, hi, Jack, would it be a good investment for a wealthy individual looking for long-term growth and current income to team up with an individual highly knowledgeable in permaculture to invest in farmland, rent it to the individual, and perhaps also invest in expensive early year permaculture improvements, which would only increase the value of his original investment? Happy New Year. Keep it the good work, uh, John. Uh, here's how my thoughts are on that. I think that can work. I think you have to be really comfortable with the people you're working with. And I'll put it to you this way. I've learned over the years that going into partnership with people who don't tender significant outlay generally doesn't work out for the best. They don't have enough skin in the game, so to speak. So the problem with this type of thing is it's a sweat equity partnership, and the person you're partnering with has not yet tendered the sweat equity. So I would say if there's any type of an ownership relationship with that person – then it needs to be from a standpoint of the ownership is vested over time based on performance metrics. I know that's really not how the question was asked, but it's where I'm going to lead it because here's how I feel. Most people that are really good at what they do in permaculture are not going to do this with you solely for the privilege of doing the work and making the early on poor return of investment. They're going to want a stake in the long-term aspect of things. Uh, they would probably want, let's develop this, this property, and then let's make it profitable, and then let's put a farm manager in place, let's do it again, and let's do it again, and let's do it again. Well, that's all good and well until you set up some type of a company to do just that, make them a partner, and then they don't work out. So my strategy going forward, and any time I'm going to establish business relationships with anybody, where I'm tendering either the capital directly or indirectly, either through my marketing ability or through my direct pocket or through associations or what have you, then 
the partner is a 0% partner early on with the ability to acquire vesting based on metrics. And I, I think that's the only way that can work. And I think it's the only way it does work because, and this is a fundamental of entrepreneurship, most people in these types of agreements where they have a salary for a period of time or whatever fail because their life is too easy. I, I know that seems counterintuitive, but it's the truth. People that build businesses successfully just effing do it. Okay, They don't give a shit if they don't do it perfect. They don't care. They don't have time to care. I, I, You know what? I'll figure out that I made a mistake when I make it, and I'll adjust, and I'll move on. They try to mitigate their mistakes, but they take effing action. right? And you hear me use effing twice there because it's the only, even though I won't use the word on air, it's the only concept that really breaks through the thick skull of many people. Not John who's asking the question, but many people that think this way. If I just had somebody to partner with, and they had the money, and then I could do the work, you will not bust your ass the way you will if your ass is on the line. Okay? You just won't. I, as much as we'd all like to believe it, if you're hanging on to someone who's going to fall off a cliff, even if it's only a, 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 a half a second variation, you'd probably hang on a little tighter if you were the one hanging versus the one holding on to somebody else hanging. It's just a fundamental reality. When that it's survival instinct internally is kicked into gear, i got to make it work, you work harder. You know, so... I would be careful with that type of a partnership. I really would. Or you have to go for a pure employee. If you want to invest, then you hire an employee with an employee contract with very clear terms of if you fail, you're fired. I don't like that. Don't work here. That's all employment is. I mean, That's the only other way I see it to work. So then you invest in the land, you hire a farm manager, you pay them a salary based on certain things. You, you You're not a heartless asshole. So you have to be, to, to be an owner, you have to be both compassionate and heartless when the situation dictates. So I've given you certain directives, you've agreed to those directives, you've met eight of the ten directives, two you have failed on, they're key directives. When we analyze the whole thing together, I realize now that it was unreasonable that all ten of these directives would have gotten done. Eight of them did get done. We now have a plan to get the other two done. We've adjusted. We've added six more directives to the next cycle, whether it's year, quarter, whatever. Uh, we're going to move on. That's compassion. Uh, I'm looking at this, and you're a complete Charlie Foxtrot. Many of you know what that means. And you have no plan to get this done, and you are screwing up. You are fired. But I have kids, and I have this. I don't care. I don't care. You're bad for the business. That's what it takes to make this type of thing work. It, it really does. It takes that type of a person that can be compassionate, where compassion is warranted, and at certain point, be cold, business, factual. And I think the problem arises with permaculture in that everybody that gets into it gets a little bit seduced, at least by the, by the, the concept of the ethics and doing right by people and all. And doing right by people is great, and we should do it. But we also need to know what it means. And what that means is if I have an employee failing and I've done what I can to empower them to not fail and they're continuing to fail, the right thing for me is for them to stop being my employee. The right thing for the company they're working in is for them not to work there anymore. And the right thing for the employee is for them to be fired. It actually is the best thing that can happen to them. The longer you stay where you suck, the worse you will do in life. Because it's a wake-up call. I need to do something else or if I want to do this, I need to get better at it. And it's hard. 
when you care. And when you have a small group like a landowner and one guy that's going to make it happen, and that relationship becomes even more difficult. So I'm not saying not to do it. I'm saying these are the things to concern yourself with. This is the other way I would look at this. I would not look at it so much as a farm income project. I would look at it as a land investment project. There is no doubt whatsoever that if I take 100 acres of land and plant it to perennial agriculture, even at the end of 10 years, if all I've done is break even on the land, the return of investment is huge. The value of that piece of land when sold now, as long as it was done properly, is much higher than the day I bought it and much higher than the cost of improvements to it if I do it right. So I, I think there, all of these things have to be considered when going into these types of relationships. And just know that most people that are really good at permaculture got that way by doing it, therefore they have a place to do it. So it may be much better that the model would be the person with the money contracts with someone that does the design and shepherds the installation, turns over a management plan, and that owner then hires a farm manager into a system. And to be honest with you, in some ways it would have been a better model for the way we did permaethos. We've got things figured out now, but but and, and some of the things we're doing going forward are very much like that. So I would advise you only based on what I know and what I've learned, and that's what I've learned. And if I was sitting on a million dollars and said, you know what, I would like to make a major investment in land. I'd like to do good things in permaculture. I'd like to buy a hundred acres, terraform this. I would, and, and, but I don't know how to do it. I, don't, I have some ideas, but I don't know. I would hire a consultant early on to at least look at Google images and things like that, tell you what to look for, water access structure, pre-purchase. After purchase, I would hire them to do full design and development, and planning, and projections, and all the whole nine yards. And after that, I would at that same point, I would begin looking for a farm manager, a head farmer, however you want to call it, that I would employ and put into the business operations as an expense, so that that person could literally be changed out. Anybody with basic experience could do the job, because it's a template now. This is when we prune the trees, this is when we mulch, this is when we turn compost, This is when we move chickens. This is when chickens are on the property. This is when chickens are not on the property. Here's the, here's the way we move the chickens. They're in tractors, they're in paddocks, whatever. Here's the processing equipment. Here's how we process them. Here's who we sell them to. Here's how we run this. Here's how we run that. And as long as that operational business is at a break-even point in two years, and some profit in three, it is a huge win. Because it's a lot like buying a house and putting a renter in it. Okay, you have a fix-up cost, etc. All you're looking to do is within two to three years get that property into cash flow positive. Now someone's buying a property for you. So what you're doing with a permaculture property like this is the business is paying for the property. And the property is continually appreciating in value. And the appreciation is far in excess of what any home's going to do. And it's far more resistant to economic downturn than a house. A farm is a business. Okay, A tree is a production machine. It's part of an assembly line. It's part of a manufacturing team. It makes an apple or a pear. And as long as it's maintained, just like the machinery, if the machinery rusts, it no longer has value. The tree has to be pruned, maintained, etc. As long as that's done, then in an economic downturn, where money starts looking, how do I maximize? They know people buy food. 
So I think this is an outstanding place to go. It's just I would look more toward the let's pay a professional design install plan. And the partner needs to be somebody that I can put in, they either work or they don't, and I can replace. I know that sounds heartless, but like I said, you have to be compassionate at the right times and cold at the other. And, and the, again, one more thing you have to understand. If an employee is wrong in a position, the worst thing you can do for them is leave them there. You have to remove them. You can do it with some care and compassion and help. Let me help you find a new place to go. Let me give you a reasonable you know, severance situation. Let me give you a clear exit strategy. Let me explain why it happened. Here's what I think you need to do. And then it's on them. Then you have to put your hands up and say, I'm sorry. That's all I can do for you. Now you have to find your own way. And I've had to do that more times than I've cared to in my life. In all types of businesses. In the end, it's always been better for everybody. Even though it didn't seem so at the time. Let's take another one. Uh, the next question is, uh, what are my plans for the propagation of seaberry? And uh, seaberry, of course, is a really great medicinal. It's something we do want to grow uh, heavily on the Permanent Ethos Farm in West Virginia, which is a great climate for it. Here in Texas, I'm trialing it, and I do plan on propagating some seed. Uh, some I might buy. Sheffield's is a good source, by the way. And hopefully some of my own plants that survive will produce for me. But I only have so much space, and this is a marginal plant. And I think people misunderstand USDA zones for a second. So I want to explain something about zones. So you look at Seabury, it'll say something like USDA zone 3 to 9. Okay, this doesn't mean that it will definitely work in zone 8. What? It says 3. No, what it means is some zone 8s and some zone 9s. So here's an example of that. The, the zones are about the minimum temperature, uh, much less the maximum in many situations. Seattle, Washington is like Zone 7, Zone 8. Dallas, Texas is like Zone 7, Zone 8. Very different climates. Much hotter summers here. But the winters are similar in temperature. Not even precipitation, snowfall, etc., but similar in temperature. And similar in minimum temperatures. Therefore, they're rated as the same zone for survivability on the cold end. Now, you could even have two places be Zone 8. One be Zone 8, heavy sun, very dry. Another place be Zone 8, lots of greenery, very wet. And Seabury would probably do much better in a wet Zone 8 with lots of green lushness than a dry Zone 8. Same exact, even if they were on the same latitude, everything was the same other than the, the climate at the location was an arid versus a humid climate. Humidity keeps roots cool. Humidity gets more green. That produces more shade. Shade reduces overall stress as long as it's not in excess. So just so you understand, that's where I'm at with the seaberry. But when it comes to propagating seaberry, I know it's possible because it does get spread by birds, not to the effect of something like Otomala, but it does happen. So it, it's something that probably is pretty easy to propagate. I imagine it's cold stratification, but I decided to you know, hand this over to the expert himself, Nick Ferguson. So uh, I sent this to Nick, and he was good enough to record a response for you, not usually when I do expert counsel questions. Uh, but Nick Ferguson, of course, uh, a ethos partner, uh, guys about ready to release a plant propagation course, and... Nick, how do we propagate seaberry from seed? Hey, Jack. This is Nick calling in to answer that question on sprouting seaberry. 
First of all, Happy New Year to all the TSB listeners. Happy New Year to you, Jack. Um, the quick, short answer on sprouting seabury is that it needs about three months of cold stratification. So you're going to want to put it in a damp media like some sphagnum moss or peat moss or a sterile like seed starting mix and make sure that's damp, not really wet. And I would wrap that up in <clears throat> in a little bit of a paper towel, a damp paper towel, and put that in a in a Ziploc bag, like a gallon Ziploc bag with air. You don't want this to be an anaerobic kind of a condition. You want a little bit of air in there so that you don't push this uh, towards the anaerobic side. And stick that in your fridge. Put in your vegetable crisper. You don't want it to freeze. You just want it to stay cold for about three months. And that should do it. Um, most people just sow their seaberry in the fall directly in the ground. And uh, I... You should have really good success with them sprouting if you use that method. So if there are more questions on starting plants and propagating and seeds and anything like that, call them in. I'd love to answer them. This has been Nick from Permaculture Classroom. Y'all have a great new year. Well, good stuff, and that's pretty much what I would expect. I would tell you the way I do it with apple seeds to, for the dampness instead of like using perlite or something like that. Uh, I actually use just damp paper towels. I lay all my apple seeds on it. I fold the paper towel over. I put that in a Ziploc bag to keep it moist. I seal it, except I leave a little tiny gap so a little bit of air exchange can happen on one corner of the bag, and I put that in a refrigerator, and I check it every once in a while to make sure it hasn't started to dry out too much and it might need a little more uh, moisture added to it. And that was worked well for me. In 60 to 90 days, I have apple seeds sprouting like crazy. So there's more than one way to skin a cat. Uh, and on that note, somebody also sent me an awesome video that I'll have a link for you to today's show notes. I won't play it online because it's not really one that works well in audio only. But it's a guy that's propagating tons, and he's got to be an Ireland or England or something like that, of chestnut and hazelnut. And all he's doing is taking a great big bag, like a potting soil or compost, and he draws two-inch grid on it. So like two-inch graph paper. And he ends up with like 60 intersections per bag. Again, this is like a standard bag of like 50-pound bag of compost or potting soil or whatever. And I think he's using compost for this. And... He cuts a, a hole, he, just a, he takes a razor knife and just cuts a slot in each intersection. Every place that there's a cross. Not the square, doesn't cut the square out. Every place two lines intersect, he cuts a slot. And then he puts his chestnuts or hazelnuts in that bag and keeps it wet until they sprout enough to be planted out. And you know, you have a shelf with, with thousand trees in a very small area, 60 per bag. And chestnuts and hazelnuts both require stratification as well. And the way he puts it, he's a little hard to understand with his accent and all, but the way he puts it is you don't do it when you want to, you do it when they want to. And he just has this great big box exposed to the element of moist soil. And he throws hundreds, thousands of chestnuts in there. So it's like 80% chestnuts and like 20% dirt. Just enough dirt so everything's covered. And he goes out once he gets to the time of the year where they start to sprout and be ready to propagate it. And he just starts running his hands through there and he looks for any that are sprouting. And whatever they sprout, they go in a spot. So that's a way to make tons of seedlings. Tons of seedlings. And I wonder how many things could we do that with? 
I'm going to be doing my apple seedlings in a misting bed, not an intermittent mist, but a you know mist a certain amount of time a day to keep it moist in a sand mixture, so I can grow very deep rooted seedlings for my apple seedlings. But if you just wanted a bunch of them and you wanted to put them in the ground when they were really little, hey, man, this would work. Once you're ready to do it, you just cut the bag open and you start planting them in the ground. And I wonder how many other things we could do that with. And there's probably other ways to do it, but this is just one simple way. I'll put the video in today's show notes if you want to see it. Okay, next one comes in. Uh, Arturo asks, uh, Hi, Jack. I have a question about your ducks and your duck eggs. How do you collect the eggs? Further details, I've heard collecting eggs from ducks could be a bit of an egg hunt because they don't nest in the same place like chickens and try to hide their eggs for predatory eyes. So I'm curious as to the system and methods you use to be uh, to harvest the majority of the laid eggs. Also, how would you compare geese versus ducks with respect to eggs and meat? Okay, that's a couple different questions. I, I've been asked for a show on duck raising, so I'm, I'm not going to go deep into this because I'm going to do that show this week. Um, but here's the basics. It's not hard. Um, ducks are very easy to home. Now, if you're doing like mallards, actual wild ducks that are, you know, clipped or something you've purchased, this may change a little bit. With domestic ducks, my experience thus far has been this. We set up a, a, a shed for them, a 10 by 10 shed. And, uh, we keep the one door open on it so they can go in there whenever they want. They don't go in there a lot, they go in there when they feel like it. And then we have an area, uh, composed of 16-foot hog panels that are wired to a fence on the back side, uh, four of them that make this big kind of rounded fence that I keep my ducks in. Um, so the whole area, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, but it's a pretty sizable area, and we keep it heavily mulched with straw to help keep the, mul uh, the, mul the uh, mud down because they make a lot of mud. They don't get their pond in there. Their ponds are outside of that area. So they have a little bit of water in there. We put some little water pants in there. They mess them up every day. We refill them. It's no big deal. But that reduces the mud as well. And I've got some ideas I'll share on the duck show about how to further reduce uh, duck mud and duck mess up in the confined space. But they go in there at night, and then they come out in the morning. And in the morning, the majority of the eggs are in the confined space. And that's another reason we've tried to go really deep with the straw, because a few of them are nesting a little bit, And they dig like a hole. It almost looks like a depression you would see from a fish building an, an egg nest in, in, the, in the bottom of a pond. Like a depression. Uh, and a few of them do lay, in, lay inside the building. Most of them just lay randomly in the area. Occasionally they get mudded up because of them being walked on. And once in a while we get one broken by a bird walking on it. And Buddy the Goose and her boyfriend Joe, who's now taken to her as a mate, stay with the ducks. So there's a pair of geese in there, and they're pretty big birds, and they can break an egg occasionally. But they're pretty tough. We lose an egg to breakage once every two weeks, maybe, maybe once every three weeks. So it's that simple. What I've read and what I've seen to be true is generally by about 7.30 in the morning, the ducks that are going to lay that day have laid. They're not like our chickens. Our chickens, we might have a few lay early, but we, if we go out there at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, there's still a few birds laying. The chickens seem to lay between about 9 o'clock and 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And yeah, most of them go back to their, but there's still some, you find random chicken eggs in different places. Uh, we found them in the hose reel box. We found them under, uh, when Joe was staying here, Joe, Joe, uh, Joe Wallingford, uh, he didn't move his Bronco for a couple months. And when we moved it, there were a bunch of eggs underneath it. We found them on shelves in, inside barns when they've gotten in there. We found them under bushes. So chickens do this too. They're just a little bit easier to home. Go back and lay your egg in your box. 
So, in fact, we found one spot where a couple of the red pharaohs that get over the fence had laid probably 50 eggs uh, between three birds. And uh, we, we float tested them and used them for personal consumption, the ones that passed the float test. So it, it happens with chickens, too. The, the thing is that ducks are much easier to contain than chickens. My ducks, if they get running as fast as they can, jump their little butt duck, duck butt off and flap their wings as hard as they can, can get about six inches off the ground for about one foot. And go back down. Which means a little three foot or two and a half foot fence keeps them in. So simply by training them to go to their house every night and then not letting them out until morning, all the eggs are there and we just pick them up. So that's the, that's the, the, the short answer to that. The Muscovy ducks, they were real easy to home. Here's how we did them. We brought them home. They came in dog crates. They were already upset, so it was the best time to go ahead and do it. We immediately clipped one side. We clipped, clipped the white, the, the primary flight feathers off the right wing because they can fly. We put them in the duck house, not in the duck area, the duck house, separated from the other ducks. We closed the door, so our ducks had to spend one night without access to their house, just their area. They were fine. In the morning, we let them out. The first morning, it took them like two and a half, three hours to come out of the house. We didn't force them out. And then it took like two days before they even left the area, even though the, the, the gate was open for them. And now they're kind of wandering around and they're, they're expanding their territory. When they start laying, I know from experience that they go to places and do what you're talking about. They may be a little bit harder, but Muscovies lay like most birds. They lay, just lay, lay, lay. And then also they go broody and then they find a spot. At that point, with our Muscovies, we're probably not going to worry about egg production. We're worried about bird production. Now, The last part of this question, how would I compare geese and ducks with respect to eggs and meat? Okay, geese only lay about 45 days out of the year. They start laying in February. They lay until sometime in March. Hopefully somewhere along the line, the, the goose decides to go broody. The gander starts pulling watch duty. She pulls down. So you're only going to get 30 to 40, a, a great bird, 60 eggs. A, a bird that just lays longer than normal lays an egg a day, you might get 60 goose eggs out of a bird, but it's probably not happening. You're probably looking at 20 to 40 eggs per goose. They're huge. They taste great. Um, meat production, the goose outproduces the duck. It's not that a, a, a duck is that much smaller than a goose. If you're, like, you go with peckins, uh, you get a pretty big duck, and there's some other ducks, like Muscovy drakes are huge. The Muscovy drakes are almost as big as the Toulouse goose. Um, but the goose puts the weight on with grass faster. You can take geese, Emberdens, Toulouse, Chinese, Africans, as goslings. You can brood them for maybe a week is all you really need to, as long as you have a good goose tractor type situation where they have shade and water and protection. You can have, I have had my geese on grass the day they got here in the mail, and everybody made it. When the, when the, when the, the, uh, the hen, the goose raises her own babies, it's, you don't do anything. They're, they're out the first day. Uh, as soon as they're dried off, you see them peeping around with, with mom. Um, but they'll go from that little fuzzball to a slaughter weight in 11 weeks and they'll do it, if you have good grass, almost mostly on grass. You'll have to do a little bit of supplemental feed. The ducks will produce a carcass. It's not that much smaller. It's smaller, but not that much smaller. But it takes a lot longer. You're looking at a neighborhood of 16, 18, 20 weeks. Meat, subjective to your own opinions and tastes and flavors. So th that's on that part. Let's move on to another one. So the next one is about comfrey. Lee says, I've started some comfrey cuttings late this fall in pots. It got too cold to transplant them uh, to the new food forest. 
I'm trying to overwinter them inside. They're doing good. See a picture attached. My question is, there is new growth shooting up on tall stalks. Is, is this considered flowering? Should I trim these off to promote growth of larger leaf growth at the base? I'm planning on transporting them uh, in late spring to keep the deer uh, from wiping them out. It's always a fight in Central Ohio to keep the deer at bay. Hopeless helps a great show. Okay, so like one of the big things to understand right from the beginning is there's no such thing as it being too cold to plant your comfrey outside. Because the root is what's viable, and you can plant the roots right before your frost sets in, as long as you can dig the ground. That root will sit in the ground all winter long and come up in spring all by itself. And so I've done the same thing Lee's done, but more because I didn't know where I was going to plant it yet. And it only stores so well in a refrigerator in a bag. It starts to get weak and soft and what have you. Or if it's in the ground, it starts sending out little shoots of, of root hairs and stuff like that and does its thing underground. Uh, where in a refrigerator it really can't work quite the same way. And there's this, you know, in a natural situation, it's not, you know, 38 degrees for 90 days in a row with no fluctuation in the absolute same humidity. When that root's in the ground, temperature's up and down and swinging. It might send up a couple shoots and they might die back in a frost. And it, 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 But it's it's nature's way. So the best thing is put it in the ground. Put it in the ground, put it in the ground, put it in the ground. Don't worry about the deer. Eat it to the ground, it'll come back. All right, so that's that's the best answer. Now, you've got it indoors. Okay, that's fine. The shoots are going to send up flowers. The flowers do take energy. I'm not so wor much worried about your it, it taking energy that could go to growing big leaves because when you transplant it, honestly, the best thing you can do, cut all the leaves off to almost nothing and plant the roots in the ground. In fact, cut the leaves off, cut the roots into a bunch of pieces, and plant the pieces in the ground. And you get more comfrey faster that way. Take your main crown head and cut your all your feeder roots off of it. Plant that crown. You get a big plant really fast to plant all your little pieces of roots anywhere else and get lots of little plants that will have big crowns by the end of the first year. So that's the best thing to do. The reason to cut the stalk, and I would, is because all the energy that goes into growing that stalk and growing those flowers is for naught, because it's probably sterile anyway, and it's inside, it's not going to get pollinated, it's not going to make seeds, so it's completely wasted. And it's not going into the production of roots. So you want to, what you're hoping is when you pull this thing out in the spring, it's just this tangle of root twisted and bent everywhere, and you start cutting into pieces. You can show you, I'll put a video up of, of me cutting my comfrey plants for propagation Uh, in the spring that we're overwintered in a greenhouse, much the way you're talking about doing it indoors here. The big concern whenever you have comfrey in a pot, do not overwater it, do not overwater it, do not overwater it, do not overwater it. It will rot the roots to mush. So gently, lightly, damp, good enough. Unless it looks like it needs water, probably better off not watering it. Okay? If it looks a little bit thirsty, give it a little bit of water. Indoors, you're not in a greenhouse like I was. Indoors, a little less humid. You don't have a natural drip from the roof and all. You know, you might want to come with a regular watering schedule. But if you touch the soil and it feels wet, it's probably too wet. It should just be damp. It shouldn't be dry. You know, if you see the dirt separating from the side of the pot, it's too dry. Looks like it's doing well for you, so I don't think you need that, Lee. I just think that's for other people. Uh, and also, as deep a pot as possible. Let those roots grow long. Comfrey wants to go down and, and mine, dynamic accumulate minerals. So the deeper the pot, the further it can go down. When you pull it out, the more pieces of root you get, the more comfrey you can propagate. Uh, so there you go on that one. Let's move on to the next one. Um, this is an interesting one. 
Um, I've said last year, toward the beginning of the year, uh, you know, January-ish of 2014, that there was a full-court press coming to kill Bitcoin. And then about two months later, when it happened and had been happening, like right from the time I said so, I said that the, that the corner had turned and that the mainstream would begin accepting Bitcoin, and then it did. And I predict this year you'll see more and more acceptance of digital currencies. More, 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 and then some more after that. Also said that a nation would come out with a digital currency and, and do that before the end of the year. And Ecuador did. Uh, I covered it when they announced it, but I don't think I ever covered the fact that it's actually under trials right now. It has been since, I think, September of 2014. So it actually does exist. I don't know that U.S. people can get it. I haven't been that interested in it. But the digital currency thing is here to stay. And the issue with digital currency is that, yeah, nations can do it, companies can do it, but anybody can do it. And, and it's truly a free market monetary system. And now that it exists, it's going to continue to exist, and it's going to continue to shape things going forward. Now, a lot's been made of the fact that Bitcoin went on this meteoric rise, crashed, made another good rise, stabilized, and then dropped all through the year last year. Uh, and here's my statement to you on Bitcoin. I have no idea what the stability number for Bitcoin is. I know that eventually it will get there. Uh, whatever that may be. I mean, this was a thing that when it came out, people said it will never be worth a dollar per Bitcoin. Right now today it's worth $268 per Bitcoin. Uh, and people would say, well, look how far it's come down. My response would be, well, I remember when it was a quarter to a Bitcoin. I remember when it was a dime to a Bitcoin. So $268 isn't exactly down. It's down from height. It's down from the beginning of 2014. But these digital currencies, and, and I've always said this too about Bitcoin, it's just the most, it was the first one that was done the right way that's gained the most acceptance, and therefore it's got the most notoriety. It's the concept that's important. It's the concept that individuals can share money privately or publicly. It's the technology. It's the fact that money is an agreement between members of an economy. It's not really a thing. It's a symbol for energy. And that basically Bitcoin has spilled the beans on that. It's no, not only governments can create currency, that we can all create our own currencies based on the economies that we operate in and our agreements with each other, that money is a psychological contract. It's too powerful for it to go away. So uh, states like New York, because New York is a bastion of freedom, you know. <laughs> anyway, if like maybe they need a bit licenses for this stuff and protect our citizens and all. But... In the end, I could, I, I'm telling you that governments have to get, get on the bandwagon with this and try to co-opt it because they can't fight it. In fact, the harder governments fight it, the stronger it will become. It's like creating a martyr. Well, California apparently, as dumb as California can be with government, has figured this out. And here's a big piece of news for digital currencies in general and Bitcoin in particular. California governor approves Bitcoin for transactions. Bitcoin can be accepted and used for transactions in the U.S. state of California as of yesterday following the ratification of a new finance bill. Previously, only U.S. dollars were officially recognized, but the new bill allows for the use of other national and digital currencies. Among a raft of new legislation coming into force for 2015 in California is the bill uh, AB-129 passed by Governor Jerry Brown in mid-2014. Aimed at ending the prohibition against the using of any alternative to U.S. dollars for commerce in the state, The bill recognizes and permits the use of alternative currencies for transactions, including digital currencies such as Bitcoin at the legislative level. Do you know how I actually feel about this? I told you so, but big whoop. Of course they've approved it. How would they stop it? 
You can't take Bitcoin. Okay, saw it off. I'm going to do it anyway. I mean, that's any business that's decided to do business in Bitcoin has basically said to any government agency that says you can't or you shouldn't or don't or thou shalt not, okay, fine, go away. That's nice. Go away. I don't care. I don't care. Well, we said you can't do it. Okay, I'm not doing it. Goodbye now. Well, you better not do it. Oh, okay. Bye-bye now. There's a big pay button right on their freaking website. Because in the end, governments don't care that you take Bitcoin in and spend Bitcoin out. All they care is on the commerce that occurs that you pay them their taxes in the currency they want, which is dollars. So they don't care. You can't have... You just can't have a state saying you're not allowed to use Bitcoin when a corporation the size of Target says you can. Or iTunes says you can. Do you, do you think Apple gave a shit that California said you're, you're not supposed to use competing currencies? And, well, do you think Apple blocked the purchase of items on iTunes using Bitcoin once they started taking Bitcoin from California or New York? No. See, that's the thing about these digital currencies, guys. It's not that they're the saving, you know, savior of the world or anything like that. It's not that they can't be turned to evil. This is the important thing. People think the form of the money is the evil. It's the monop monopoly on the creation and control of money and the use of force by government through the issuance of currency that's the problem. And the coercion created when you take something like the Federal Reserve, which is a private institution, and give it governmental authority. That is neo-fascism at its finest right there. So it's not that these digital currencies will fix everything. In fact, many of the people that are very excited about digital currencies were the same people five years before it was done the way that it was done, screaming they, will want, they want a cashless society, they want to get rid of money, and once they have that, they can track everything that we do. And they weren't wrong then, and they're not wrong now. See, if a government does this digital currency thing of a bob and mandates that its citizens do business with it, it can indeed track every single cent or sachi or whatever you wish to call it. Amero dollars, whatever. Americoins, North Amero coins, whatever, you want, whatever conspiracy theory you want to go down. Regardless of what you think about conspiracy theories, if the United States government puts its cryptologists behind the development of an American monetary system based on a Bitcoin-like technology, it can indeed track every penny spent by every citizen everywhere, ever, infinity, using that currency. But the problem for governments now is they almost have to, this is like making an alliance with the Borg, in a way. For those that aren't Star Trek fans... Give me a second to bring you up to speed as quickly as possible and what I'm saying because it's a great analogy. In the Star Trek universe, there's these things called the Borg. They say things like, you will be assimilated. They're extremely technologically advanced. Uh, they don't destroy civilizations. They assimilate them. So they find a planet, they just take everybody, and they put them in these cube spaceships, and they travel all over the universe, and there's one collective mind of the Borg. And the Borg operate from a standpoint of we're stronger than you, we'll take from you, we'll make you do what we want you to do. There's nothing you can do about it. Resistance is futile. Sounds similar? Sounds like government to me. Okay? Now, in that world of Star Trek, they've created all these different species and races from different planets and all over these galaxies and everything. And in sometimes there's conflict. But no matter the conflict... And no matter who's really superior in the conflict, there's always a potential for diplomacy and negotiation with anybody. 
whether it's a Cardassian or a Romulan or a Klingon or anything else that the mind of the creators of Star Trek and Gene Roddenberry could dream up, there's always some potential for dialogue. When they created the Borg, they created an entity in which you cannot negotiate. Like terrorists, right? Okay, anyway, just saying. Uh, so you cannot negotiate with these people because they're not people, they're one mind, and the one mind is of one thought. Thou shall be assimilated, and you will do as we say, you will become parts, or we will destroy you, and we're stronger than you so we can make it happen. There is an episode where negotiations with the Borg happens because a third party, an enemy stronger than even the Borg itself, comes into the picture And while the Borg tell the Federation people they don't need to negotiate with them, in the end, even the collective consciousness of the one mind of Borg realizes, to preserve myself, I must negotiate. Now, as soon as they get the opportunity, they go back on their negotiation, try to renege, and screw over the people they made the deal with. Sound like government? Okay, just saying, just saying. I didn't write the storyline, somebody for Star Trek did. Um, in the next generation, no, not next generation, what was that? Uh, the one where they get lost. I, I never really watched that one much. These, uh, not Deep Space Nine, um, Voyager, Voyager. The Mrs. Columbo lady was the captain, that one. Okay, now, even those me, let me bring it back around to the government and digital currencies. So, digital currencies are a threat to everything government ever believed that it could do with money. The one thing the government knew, it could only do so much with military force. You can only use so much military force against your own people before they get pissed off and your military becomes the people and they turn back around, you have a coup d'etat, and get your ass killed. So military force only goes so far. The force of police requires that of money. Most of the ways that the government controls people, even through the use of force, involves money. So by taking control of the issuance of money and taking the oligarchs in, 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 in charge of an oligarch-style republic, a neo-fascist oligarchy republic, that's your actual form of government in this country. I know that's not what the Constitution says, okay? But that's what you have. You have a, a, a an oligarchy, a neo-fascist oligarchy is what runs this country. And by the way, for those of you that think, if we just had a republic like we're supposed to, an oligarchy is a type of republic. Okay, Republican of itself is not the answer. It's the guardians that matter to a republic. And in this case, the guardians are asleep while the oligarchs are in control. The money is the means of control. When digital currencies came out, it was such a challenge to the paradigm of the oligarchs that they went, nah. And the government, who was in control by the oligarchs, went, nah. And then it started working. Like, oh, shit, they're just using this to like high dollars. And they didn't realize that people were actually using it as money. They didn't get it. They thought it was just, it's just a way to hide dollars. It's just criminal activity, and we'll come down on that, and it didn't work. And the first time a middle-aged housewife whose son does websites for a living, and she runs some type of business of her own, and her son set it up so that she could get Bitcoin on the Internet for whatever it is she does, and she decided to take it because her son said it was okay, and she did it. And then the first time she went and bought cat food at Target with Bitcoin, And they said, and she, then she read an article that said this is for, this is for, uh, criminal activity. She went, no, I bought nine lives with it. It was over. Right, I mean, right there. That was, that was David, sl sl you know, killing Goliath with the slingshot. You know, by the way, when David killed Goliath with the slingshot, whether you believe it was mythology or real, doesn't matter. In the story, however you want to take the story, killing a person who's clad in armor with a sword, with a slingshot hurling stones, is not a disadvantage. The guy with the slingshot has the advantage, even though he looks smaller and weaker. 
Okay? In this situation, digital currencies were the David, the slingshot against the large behemoth in armor that looked undefeatable. And unlike the story of David and Goliath, one purpose, you know, perfect rock didn't hit the Goliath and kill it, but it shanked the armor and it hurt. And also a whole shitload of David started picking up rocks and spinning them. And Goliath goes, I will now make a deal. I will now negotiate. And then that's when it turned. That's what happened in 2014. So this is what you really need to understand about Bitcoin. Bitcoin is only part of a larger movement. It's not the movement. Okay? It's not even critical to the movement. It's just a piece that's revealed many of the chinks in the armor of those in control of society. That's all that it is. And it could go away. And it's already done its damage. You know, it would be like being in a battle and you fire your rifle and the commander of the enemy forces that's critical to the enemy defeating you is struck with the bullet in the jaw. And he goes down. He's not even dead, but he's incapable of continuing command. And you say that the bullet was wasted since it's gone and you'll never have it again. Whether Bitcoin continues to, to, to have a full quiver or not, it's, it's done its damage. Whether it's another form that comes up and takes over. Because here's the, tr the, the truth. Governments have tried to use technology to increase control, but every time technology evolves, governments cease to contain control. It's true with the internet. It was true with the telephone. It was true with the telephone. When you could talk to somebody in Russia over the phone, they weren't as scary as when they were just some gray face on television. And all of this advancement in technology is leading us into a place where it's harder for government to control minds because the truth is easier to share. And one of the truths that we can share between individuals is that we have something of value to exchange. So if I'm in a position where using something like Bitcoin, I can just put my money into uh, an off network wallet, a mnemonic device, and have my money in my head, get on a plane, step off in Australia, and claim my money in Australia, and do whatever I want with it over there, whether it be converted to Australian dollars or leave it as Bitcoin or just leave it sit there in the, the cloudless cloud, which is what kind of the, 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 the paper wallet is of Bitcoin. It's like a cloudless cloud. It's in the cloud, but it's not. It's like out of phase, and it won't come back into phase until I tune it. Well, that allows me to do business with anybody that wants to do business with me. And the government can't say shit about it. And they never could. They just led you to believe that they could. Through codes and taxes and the issuance and control of currency. But it's only one thing. How many things have, gov have government convinced you of that only government can do? That as soon as we have something like a Bitcoin, even if it's Bitcoin 2.0, even if it's permacredits, even if it's interstellar space coin. I don't care what you call the next generation of it. As soon as you have that, and you start to be able to realize you can do business with people virtually, you can create voluntary associations. All of a sudden, I don't need government for schools, education, contract negotiation, contract enforcement. I can just make this list of things that everybody was like, we at least need them to do that. No, we don't. No, we don't. No, we don't. Not really. They can do a little bit of that. We'll do the rest of it ourselves. This is the progression of society toward liberty and freedom. This is why sometimes, even though it looks really dark and, and, and bleak for humanity, I believe that as we move forward, as people are empowered with knowledge, 
they have a greater desire for liberty and freedom. And therefore, they demand it. And there's something that's true that no government's ever been able to change. There's something in society called a critical mass. And once a critical mass is reached, it's impossible to stop it. And it's not 51%. It, it's it, In each issue, the percentage actually varies. Some could be as little as 10. Some could probably be as low as 5. Some might be as high as 40. But it's the point that it's it's hit that and it's still moving forward, and the idea catches time and the idea catches fire and the idea has come to its time and it's unstoppable. And when a society says to a government, you will, not we want you to, you will, then they do. Because just like the Borg, when their own preservation is threatened, when their own survival is threatened, they will negotiate with what they consider to be weaker beings, you and me. And they will negotiate and they will, they will go into childlike negotiation. They will do anything to survive when they really feel threatened. And the larger and, and the more momentum a critical mass has, the more they realize their very existence, the very continuation of the illusion that they're necessary becomes threatened. They will capitulate. And just like the Borg, the second they believe they're strong, they will go back on any deal they make. If you doubt that, talk to a Native American about how you can trust deals from government. I'm just saying. So understand that things like California saying, we'll let you use Bitcoin, is a lot like telling a fish, well, I'll allow you to swim. You can catch the fish and fillet it and kill it. You can bluestone the water and kill all life in it. You can drain the pond. But the fish doesn't ask for your permission to swim. As long as there's water and the fish is in it and it's livable water, fish is going to swim. That's where digital currencies got to. Governments could say whatever they want and the fish swam. Where it goes next, we have yet to see. But I predict there will be an entire new type of virtual currency by the end of this year independent from government a new private 2.0 bitcoin type of such, such type of thing and i do predict the rise of virtual nations beginning this year as well let's take another one um this one i want to throw out to anybody and i just gave this piece of advice to my son today Uh, in regards to advice uh, for someone else that he cares about in his life that's dealing with people that are uh, hateful and mean toward them. Uh, this comes from Jennifer, and it's a quote from Aristotle. So it's about 2,300 years-ish old. And it is, the only way to avoid criticism is to say nothing, do nothing, be nothing. I thought it would be a great quote for me to drop on you in this new year of 2015. When you start working toward liberty and freedom, whether you do it publicly like I am or privately in your own individual life, which, albeit, is an easier path in many ways, you will upset people, you will disturb people, you will anger people, and they will criticize you. And they will be hateful towards you. And they will call you crazy. And they will do things towards you that will bother you if your skin is not thick enough. And I don't want to upset anybody, but let me tell you the truth about this. Women seem to have a bigger problem with this than men. Men are much more likely to just look at a situation where somebody doesn't like what they're doing and go, well, 
I don't care if you don't like it. Right? And women, because they're more emotionally led, are more likely to feel bad that somebody doesn't understand what they're doing. There are many situations where we as men can learn from the compassion and the emotion and the feeling-led actions of women. This is one where women can learn more from men. But men suffer from this too. You cannot worry that you are criticized, especially by those who do not influence or affect you. And many times, influence and effect are choices. If it's somebody you care about and they don't like your decisions, you can choose that it affects you because you care about the person. If it's your wife or your husband, it's a whole different level. But many times it's not. It's a friend or a cousin or a sister or a brother that is just kind of snooty towards you with your idea or your thing you're doing or whatever it is. And people sit around and actually worry about it and mull on it. My only response is the only way to avoid criticism is to say nothing, do nothing, and God, this one should hit you right between the eyes, be nothing. He who is not criticized is nothing. He has no impact on society. He leaves nothing behind when he or she is gone. It would be as if they were never there once they have disappeared. <laughs> I look at it this way. If you don't like me, form a club, have meetings, discuss how much you don't like me. As long as you don't own the home I live in, own the company I work for, or in some way have direct impact on my life, I don't care. I have too many important things to be doing. And I don't want that statement to be about me. My wish for every member of this audience is that I can push that spirit into you, into your very soul, into your very heart this year to feel that way. Not to be a callous ass that doesn't care about people, but to know and believe in yourself enough to feel that when someone criticizes you, when someone doesn't believe in what you're doing, someone is hateful towards you, someone is in opposition to what you stand for, someone thinks you're crazy because you believe in something, and you're willing to do what's necessary to get it done, that you simply do not care because it's more important for you to be something than to be nothing. That's my advice for you as you go into 2015. Uh, thank you to Jennifer for sending me that quote. Turning 180 degrees in the exact opposite direction. Hey, don't you guys, just on a side note, don't you love it when some like big-time athlete uh, moves to a new team or whatever and says something like this, like, you know what, we're in the wrong direction. We're going to turn this team 360 degrees around. Uh, okay. See that your college degree was only honorary. Anyway, uh, but yeah, turning 180 degrees around from where we were just at. Um, this is a question from John, and this is an interesting question. What is your opinion from a permaculture perspective where we, you know, for those that aren't familiar with the term, let me just put it this way. Permaculture is led by a prime directive. The only ethical decision is to take responsibility for ourselves and that of our children. And three, ethics, care of earth, care of people, and return of surplus to the end of the first two. All right, so growing food, growing a business, doesn't matter. It's based on that. So from a permaculture perspective, on the use of helicopters and automatic weapons, to eradicate hogs in order to preserve farmland. I'm wondering about the waste of carcasses. Okay, first let me just say, as a guy, getting into a helicopter, <laughs> like I did when I was in the military, 
and hanging out the window with an automatic weapon and firing it as that bird moves through the air excites me. Okay? I know that it's done a lot to kill human beings, and I don't want to do that uh, unless those human beings mean to kill me, and it's in true defense, which seldom do we operate in true defense anymore in this country, sadly, but as a nation anyway. Um, but, you know, there's a reason men join the military and go into combat arms and do things like this, because there's a certain surge, adrenaline rush to it. So the concept of doing it to pigs that don't belong where they are, eh, I can see that I would enjoy it. Okay, The waste of it, though, I would not. I would not. And I probably wouldn't take that approach. But it's an interesting question in a totally different way. We have feral hogs in many states that are now a problem. They're not a little problem either. They are a huge problem. Um, wild pigs do three things. They eat, they fight, and they make more pigs. That's it. And a pig will have multiple litters a year and anywhere between six to 12 piglets per litter. And I've personally seen feral hog sows where you can tell they have two litters and like one are like half-grown piglets and the next group are like little giant guinea pig-sized piglets. Not guinea hogs, like guinea pigs from the pet store, like that big. So she's got two litters following her around at the same time. And she's going to kick out the second generation, and by the time they're up to that, the, 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 the next generation is up to that side, she's going to drop another litter. There is an estimate that there are more than 6 million feral hogs in the state of Texas alone, and I believe that estimate to be low. They can pretty much survive anywhere, and they do a lot of damage. There's also an awful lot of money spent in this country every year on pork. Feral hogs are not the best-tasting hogs, but they could be managed to be somewhat better-tasting hogs. And they ain't bad either, especially in the production of things like sausage. So if I was going to get military on hog elimination, I would be more likely to do this. In many states, that rule about not hunting at night doesn't apply to them, because it shouldn't. And that rule about using certain technologies to kill them doesn't apply to them, because it shouldn't, because they don't belong there. And things like hunting seasons and bag limits do not apply. That's why there are places where people literally get in a helicopter and shoot pigs from a helicopter. So, how could they be harvested in large numbers in ways that would be more effective from a military? Because I had a totally different way to do this, but a military standpoint. Night vision gear and feeders and suppressors. That sounds fun. Maybe I'll set up a hunt like that someday for some rancher that needs a bunch of them killed. And if you have enough people come, then you have enough people to use the meat. Uh, it is a valuable meat. Now, the other side of this, the earth recycles. And in the end, these animals, while it's a waste because humans could eat them, are going to be consumed by other pigs. They'll eat each other, yes. Coyotes, other animals, and they will rot as carcasses into the ground, and they will return their surplus to the earth. So it's a very complex question. I don't have, I mean, if I had the right answer for this, I'd probably be working for the state of Texas solving the problem. The most effective method has been with dealing with hogs is to feed them very, very heavily. And they don't, they don't climb fences very well. Okay. So you set up a feeder. It brings in hogs. It brings in hogs. It brings in hogs. You do that for a long time and condition them to come in. 
And then you set up basically fencing around the feeder with a door, and it's basically a giant hog trap. And once they're trapped, they're either sold to hunting preserves or people that are breeding uh, for wild boar stock, or they're just simply shot and used however they can be used at that point. I mean, if nothing else, if, if, even if you have, like some of the older feral boars, guys, you really don't want to eat them. I, I shot one, and uh, the ranch that I was hunting on, uh, they had boar dogs. And uh, what they ended up doing was they're like, do you want this? I'm like, no. I mean, this thing stunk. This thing was like was like 50 yards away from it when I shot it. And it literally stunk more after I shot it. Like, when the bullet hit it, it, it made stink come out of it. That's how putrid this thing was. And they said, well, no problem. It won't go to waste. And what they do is they just simply quarter it out. They hack the meat off it really, really quick. They throw in a giant grinder. And it's food for their dogs. So, if nothing else, it's a pet food. Uh, I, I don't like anything rotting and going to waste. I think the bigger question is, instead of, is it okay for somebody to shoot pigs out of a helicopter, if you own a piece of land, and the stability, uh, the profitability, the long-term value, and the ability of that land to do what you intended was threatened by feral hogs, how would you deal with it? And I think there's a really important lesson in that. It's very easy for us to look at what other people are doing and go, they're wrong, they shouldn't do that, that's bad, that's evil. Seldom do we, to put a Native American quote into context here, walk in the other man's moccasins. What if it was your land? Those of you that think, well, you should never do anything like that, you should never kill them in, in large scale, whatever. It's your land. You have a hundred acres. It's beautiful. You're turning it into whatever you, not even necessarily permaculture, whatever you want it to be. And you have... Literally thousands of these pigs coming in waves through your property, destroying the economic value of your property and your goals for your property. What would you do? And then start applying that question whenever you become enraged about what somebody else is doing. It doesn't mean that you won't realize, hey, this person really is a prick. And this person really is wrong. But if we don't at least ask the question first... What would I do if I were them? And not superficially, okay? Take protesting, for example. You see these people out protesting, hands up. This nonsense. Thing that never happened, right? Never happened that way. If you think it did, you're just in denial. I'll say it. Fine. But the people that are out doing it believe it. Why? What have they been through in their lives? That they believe this propaganda. What would you do if you were them? What is the way that you would figure out how to separate yourself from a programming that's simply different than the programming that probably controlled your life not that long ago? Most of you listening to this show are, are at the point when you start listening and you can listen for more than a day where you've begun to deprogram yourself. If you hadn't, you'd say, this guy's nuts, I can't deal with him, he, he's crazy. I, I can't, right? Sometimes I might go too far for you, but you're uh, he wants to go out there, I want to go at least as far. Okay, fine. Right, So you're beginning to deprogram yourself. When you're critical of someone else, simply because their programming was different than your programming, they were just watching a different channel on the television. Literally. Their, their, their antenna, instead of being properly tuned, was just improperly tuned 50 degrees left, where yours was 50 degrees right. So we need to ask that question. And that's what that leads me to. Personally, I don't know. 
I don't know. I don't know the answer. Is that wrong? To, to wholesale slaughter wild pigs with automatic weapons in a helicopter. I can't believe it's the most economically viable way to do things. I have to believe there's more economically viable ways to do things. So the reason I started out with, you know, as a former military guy and as a guy and as a guy that likes guns and likes machines and speed and power, the concept, and I think for a lot of people that say, oh, I would never do that, you, you might be BSing a little bit unless you're actually afraid to, you know, hang out the window of an aircraft on a harness and shoot. Um, the concept of doing that, right, The, the reason I'll admit that is because that could be part of why it happens that way. It's an excuse. We can go kill a bunch of them and, I mean, come on. What, <laughs> what gun guy and speed guy doesn't, doesn't at least fancy the concept of being a door gunner? And then having something that really does need to die, like a feral pig, to shoot at, to make it challenging. I mean, if, if those types of things didn't work, there'd be no video games. What what makes this a unique issue is that pig's not supposed to be there. It's not like trying to wipe out the coyote. The coyote is a natural part of the North American biome, as was the wolf. The top predators, uh, along with major grazers like bison, were part of the natural system, which we've all but obliterated, by the way. The pig is a disruptor. There is no animal, save for javelina, in a very small part of the American uh, nation, that behaves anything like the pig. The closest would be the bear, and they're very, very different creatures. Not just in look and appearance, but behavior as well. But the closest thing would be like black bear. Black bear do not reproduce in the numbers or the frequency, and they do not have anywhere near the adaptability, survivability, and the total omnivity of, of a feral hog. In other words, black bears are omnivores, but... Feral hogs are like the ultimate omnivore. If you'll eat it, they'll eat it, and they'll eat things you would never eat. That, it, it's just that broad. So they're a problem. So I, my question to the audience then is, what would you do to control them on a piece of property where they were destroying your goals for the property? Next up from Erica on the March of Automation. I've been saying all last year, automation, 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 the elimination of jobs, the rise of technology, Well, the rise of the machine continues at Amazon.com. Uh, just real brief. Basically, they have these robots now. And, you know, a long time ago, I, I'm not even going to read the article. You can read it for yourself if you want to. I'll put a link to it. They got these robots, and they look like big vacuum cleaners. Not like vacuum cleaners you use, but like the vacuum cleaner robot, low to the ground, uh, like kind of circular, rectangular thing. Uh, they're orange and black couple feet, probably three feet long by two feet wide type of thing on wheels. And they roll around in the warehouse, which is all cement, and there's these big bins of all the different stuff. The robots tied into the computer system know every bin and everything in every bin. And it doesn't completely eliminate people, because what the robot does is when there's a guy filling an order, and he needs, uh, oh, I don't know, a United States Marine Corps-style K-bar knife of a certain size, shape, color, combination, whatever. The robot knows he needs it, and actually knows he needs it before he needs it. He knows he's going to need it based on the speed. The robot drives through the warehouse, gets the the whole bin, lifts it up, 
and rolls the bin, and by the time the picker needs the knife, the bin that has the knife, and it's not just knives in that bin. The way Amazon does things is crazy. It looks all jumbled, but it's all based on their algorithms that tell them what needs to be where, when it needs to be there. He looks, and, and you know, basically he knows to go into this drawer, because the robot tells him, or his computer tells him, and he pulls the knife out and puts it in the box. And if the guy that ordered that ordered something as randomly crazy uh, and unrelated as a pruner for trees, that bins over here and another robot brought him that. He puts that in there. And then those robots take the bins somewhere else, maybe to another picker, maybe back to a staging area. And pick up another bin and take it either to that guy or somebody else. And they just roll. Now, when I worked in a warehouse when I first moved to Texas, I was a packer. Right? So that, that's what this guy's doing, basically. He's a packer. But to get that same job done, there were three positions. There was a picker, a checker, and a packer. Okay, The robots eliminated two of those three positions. So this was a very high-volume warehouse, and we would never be sending one or two items. It was very, very rare. Um, this was like uh, Home Interiors and Gifts was the company. And these were people that were like in a kind of like a, a work from home situation where they're selling to friends and family and doing parties. And they would be ordering a big case or a pallet full of stuff at a time. Anything from candles to plaques to, and then, you know, basically retail customers and things like that. So you'd be shipping a very large volume to each customer. The picker looked like a shopper. Okay. So there were aisles and aisles, just like a grocery store, right? Or a, a hardware store. And they had shopping carts, just plain old shopping carts. And they would get a list for customer ABC. And they would just start running through the aisles, picking. And a good picker could pick a lot really fast. And they would bring the cart to a checker, just like checkout. At a, I think a lot of people don't know warehouses run this way. Looks just like a checkout at Costco. Okay, Drop the cart off and go do it again. And drop the cart off and go do it again. The checker ran it across a scanner, just like you're paying for it, to create a bill of a shipping receipt, and to inventory it and to cross-check it to make sure everything's there. Me, the packer, would take all the things, shove them in boxes, tape them shut, label them, and stack them, and push them off to the side. And then a guy would come with a hand truck that would take them, sign off for each order, and roll it to the appropriate truck where it would be loaded into for shipment. Okay? What Amazon has done is taken, and probably more, those two people, the picker and the checker, are gone. The robot doesn't make mistakes. And if he does, the packer sees the mistake. This is supposed to go in here. This isn't right. I'll send it back. Right? But it probably doesn't happen that often. He doesn't say so in the article, but I bet you he's putting all his boxes to a place where another robot takes it to the truck. That guy's gone too. So four people have become one. And these are like, so when people think robots taking over jobs, they're thinking we have to have robots that are like uh, uh, androids and they can think for themselves. And no, all those tasks are so rudimentary; it's just not necessary for a human being to do them. And technology is eliminating those jobs. If you uh, if you want to learn more, that's called the Kiva robot, K I V A. Amazon's busiest employee, the article's on CNET. I'll have a link in today's show notes. But it says a lot about where we're going as a society and where we're going economically in the future and the things that we need to be thinking about 
to have stable careers, lives, and businesses in the future. On to a question that will be hard to answer, answer for me, um, sort of kind of like the question on hogs, but in a totally different way, um, which is where there's like this conflict uh, of you know what what is and what needs to be done and what should be, and what would you do if you were in the other person's shoes and understanding that. I'll be clear in a second. Um, <clears throat> this comes from Terry, and Terry says, as a veteran member of the 82nd Airborne, I was wondering what your take on Oath Keepers is. And in a minute, maybe it'll be, it'll come to you why I have some conflict here and some of the things that I, I have to say if I am to be honest, I guess would be the way to put it. First and foremost, I'm a supporter of Oath Keepers, plain and simple. There's, there's no world in which that's not the case. Um, it absolutely is the case in spite of some of the things that I'm about to say. And if you go to the survivalpodcast.com um, and you click on, you just go to the main page and you, you start to scroll down, you'll see some different icons. And the second to the last kind of medallion-shaped one in the center is Guardians of the Republic, not on our watch, and that link will take you to Oath Keepers. Uh, I've been a friend to Oath Keepers for a very, very long time. And uh, we'll continue to be so. Okay, so just so we're clear on that. Here's the thing: a lot of the rhetoric I've seen coming out of Oath Keepers lately makes me feel very concerned that there's such a perception bias in, in, in the organization that they literally feel what they exist to prevent must occur. And therefore, everything that they're seeing, they are interpreting as being proof positive that what they expect to occur is occurring. And I think part of it is because many of the people in Oath Keepers, including many of its founders, and I am a founding member, by the way, of Oath Keepers, uh, but many of the founders believed when Oath Keepers was formed that these things were soon to come to pass, that the need for Oath Keepers would, and not just in its its principal mission, which is the prevention of these things, but to stand when they occur, they were so sure it was going to happen, that it was important enough to, to found the movement. And then when it didn't, I almost think there are people within Oath Keepers that are at this point surprised that it has not, that they have been uh, seduced by the Alex Jones viewpoint. Where we're all going to FEMA camps, it's going to happen any day, there'll be martial law on the streets, etc. Not, those things can happen, therefore we must be ready to stand. Those things are going to happen, they're going to happen soon. And when you've been waiting for something to happen soon, for so long, and it has not occurred, you begin to try to justify the fact that you were stating that it was going to occur. This is how some of the things coming out of Oath Keepers makes me feel right now. And I don't like saying this. I don't like saying this. I consider Stuart Rhodes a personal friend. If he asked me for my help tomorrow morning, I would give it to him. But this is what I felt Oath Keepers was about when I joined. Current and former members of law enforcement and military acknowledging that they have taken an oath to the Constitution of the United States of America, not to any man, not to any office, to the Constitution of their nation and or state, to uphold and defend the same, so help me God. And that even if my duties and responsibilities end through retirement or voluntary leaving service, etc., 
um, the oath itself remains. The, the core of the oath is not obeying the orders of the officers appointed over me. The, the core of the oath is a defense of the nation and its people under our Constitution. And the, 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 the whole point of being an oath keeper was to say that oath stands before anything else. And if ever ordered to violate it, I will not. Basically, oath keepers was to say, the oath isn't just something we do. It's something we mean. It's who we are. It's what we are. It embodies our very soul as sheepdogs that protect the people of this country or this state or this community or my own family. And I will not break my oath because there's a belief in government that the oath is just something we do to pacify the sheep. But those that take the oath have a higher responsibility to actually mean it when they say it. And it stands as a force that say, you don't even know how many of us there are. You don't know how many of us are retired old guys. And you don't know how many of us are active in uniform. You don't know. Don't try to use this as a tool for evil. Because if you do, there are enough of us who are strong and stand with truth and reason and logic to protect those that will need our protection, and we will do so, regardless of what you want. And through our very conviction and numbers, we will convince the majority of our brothers to stand at our side, at the side of the people, at the side of law, on the side of the Constitution. We exist primarily as a fire suppression mechanism. Our job is to prevent, to prevent the falling of the republic. If needed, if needed, and in spite of our best efforts, the republic as we know it should fall, then we will stand to reestablish it. But we stand first to prevent it from falling. That's what I thought I was joining, and that's what I feel, still feel like I am part of. But I think some of the rhetoric coming out and some of the latest things from Oath Keepers leans toward the, it must happen, it's got to happen, it's going to happen, we have to be ready for it to happen. Far more from, we will not let it happen. And I think that there is some level of perception bias in the group. And we all have perception bias. And we all have to moderate our perception bias. This is not really a criticism, it's an acknowledgement of at least some And, you know, and, and a meaningful enough segment of the group that it's affecting the top level communications that come out of it. Basically, this is the oath that as an oath keeper you swear to, in addition to the oath you've already taken. We will not obey orders to disarm the American people. We will not obey orders to conduct warrantless searches of the American people. We will not obey orders to detain American citizens as unlawful enemy combatants or to subject them to military tribunal. We will not obey orders to impose martial law or a state of emergency on a state. We will not obey orders to invade or subjugate any state that asserts its sovereignty. We will not obey any order to blockade American cities, thus turning them into giant concentration camps. We will not obey any order to force American citizens into any form of detention camps under any pretext. We will not obey orders to assist or support the use of any foreign troops on U.S. soil against the American people to keep the peace or to maintain control. 
We will not obey any orders to confiscate the property of the American people to include food and other essential supplies. We will not obey any orders which infringe on the right of the people to free speech, to peaceably assemble, and to petition their government for redress of grievances. I can get behind that. You know what else I can do with that? I can tell people that I know in law enforcement you should be an oath keeper. And when they say to me, well, our government would never do that, then I can say then there's no harm in you standing and saying you wouldn't either. And I can make them think about their oath. But some of the stuff that's come out that might as well be on InfoWars, I'll lose that ability to a degree. I'm not even saying they're completely wrong. I'm just saying when you're running an organization with the mission, and the primary mission to me always as, as a member of Oath Keepers has been so that the people in law enforcement and military in this nation don't forget who they serve. That's the primary mission. Because if we can do that, none of these things can ever happen. And frankly, I'd like to see more of that and less of Alex Jones style sound bites out of Oath Keepers as a member and not as, an, as somebody in opposition or criticizing them. That's just how I feel. And I will remain a member and I will continue to support them. But I also realize that a, a member of an organization need not follow blindly the organization. In fact, when we do that, organizations stop becoming stop being organizations they become cults and jack spirico's nobody's cult member let's take another one uh back to agricultural permacultural stuff uh what uh jack what beneficial birds should i be trying to attract to my homestead in east central missouri details i'm building a homestead based on permaculture ethics I want a permaculture orchard and want to start building birdhouses to bring in natural pest control for the garden and for my small orchard food forest. Any ideas off the top of your head? Thanks very much, John. Uh, my belief on birds is more is better, all are good, and some are better than others. Um, the birdhouse thing is a good idea, and you can look up the predatory. And this is what you want to look for. is insect-eating birds uh, for your area. So, you know, insect-eating birds in Missouri on Google would go a long way. And look up what their what their preferred nesting habitats are, and those that would be suited well to boxes, how high they should be, how big they should be, how big the openings are, and you can do that. But I think that's very minor in the totality of attracting birds. You, you, for a minute, let us think like a bird, not a chicken, which is also a bird, but a bird like the bird we're talking about, a wild bird. What are the, uh, the goals in life of a bird? You know, one of those goals is to reproduce. That's why we think about birdhouses. That's a, birds don't like, you know, they don't like transiently sleep in a birdhouse. They use a birdhouse to make new birds and lay eggs and have babies and produce more. So yes, that's one goal that a bird has. But before a bird even worries about that, the very first goal of a bird is to do what? To not be eaten by other creatures. Right? So the first thing we need to think about for birds is what do they, what makes them comfortable? Because they feel like I have less of a chance of being eaten by a, you know, a, a hawk or a cat or whatever. And that is cover and perching spaces. So one of the things we can do as our trees are coming up is we can actually put in perches for birds. We can go in and put in, you know, pedestals 
just sticks in the ground with a, with a nice place to perch on top of until the trees get high enough. That alone, it, it's, it's amazing what happens. I've seen people go out, put surveying stakes in, in an empty field, you know, and they're like four foot, five foot high stakes so they can be seen. And as the guy's getting to the end of the line, there's already birds perch, perching where they would have not been out in that field before because they felt too vulnerable on the ground. And when they go to the ground and get food, they want to go to the ground and come back up. So perching spaces is a big thing you can do. The next thing is just improve the habitat and put water on your landscape and birds will appear. Cover, habitat improvement, water, birds will show up. Next thing is a lot of people are tempted to put in bird feeders to attract birds. And it's not a terrible thing. And we feed birds. All the spillage goes to the ducks that eat all the, the sunflower that comes over the edge. And we like to see the birds and all. But the reality is when you feed birds seed, you attract what? Seeding birds. Uh, now, some of those birds may be omnivorous in a good way and some not so good. So you will attract birds that will do things like eat your cherries. Right Now, if we grow enough and we do things the right way, we can give them some cherries to the birds. We don't want to necessarily attract all season long birds that when the cherries come will stop eating the seeds and go to the cherries. So we're better off with habitat than feeders. Now, some of the birds that I've noticed are the most beneficial birds to have around are mockingbirds, catbirds, uh, purple martins. These guys are all like crazy insect eaters. And then there's a the little bird, and I, I've never actually researched what, because I don't think they're actually called this like scientifically. I think it's a regional name. But we always call them Jenny Wrens. Jenny Wren. And these were birds that my grandfather did put bird boxes up for, and he knew the size and, and all for them. We don't have them here in Texas, so I've really kind of lost touch with them. But these little birds are like, man, they're like as big as maybe two peanuts glued together, really, because they're little feather fluff and all goes away. It's probably how much body they have on them. And they're fast as all get out. And these things tore up Japanese beetles. So that was a great bird. But I think in the end, the whole point of a permaculture system emulating nature is that nature knows what niches to fill. So if we focus on creating the niches, nature will fill them. That means we need to be careful because if we create open space, nature will send a weed. But if we create vertical spaces for birds, birds will come occupy them. And I was I just watched Mark Shepard's Restoration Agriculture DVD a second time. And toward the end he was talking about how he was walking through his field one day and he saw a shrike, this very rare shrike, uh, that preys on mice. And it was fighting with this rare weasel. We used to think of weasels as bad, but this small weasel preys on, mostly on mice. The reason they call this thing a shrike is one of its behaviors is it'll catch a mouse and it'll kill it. And unlike a lot of birds, it will not, it, it won't stop killing mice because it's full. Most birds only hunt when they're hungry. If you talk to a falconer, they'll tell you it's a very delicate balance to keep your bird heavy enough that it's healthy and it'll be in good shape to fly and kill and strong and not overfeed it so it'll have an instinct to do it. Shrikes are like murderous, ravenous mouse killers. So when they kill a mouse and they realize, I don't need to eat this right now. My babies are full, I'm full, I'm good, but I might need this later. They go find like a thorn or a twig or a stick in a tree and they impale it. Like Vlad the Impaler from the history segment, and they impale the mouse. They like decorate the trees with dead mice. And when they're hungry and they don't see another mouse to kill, they go eat one of those mice. Well, this rare weasel had shown up and was taking the mice 
and the Shrike and the Weasel were fighting over a mouse that had been impaled on a tree. And both of these were extremely rare animals for the area of Wisconsin that Mark's in. Surrounded by mainstream agriculture, in a field that 15 years ago was nothing but a corn and bean field. And they were there. This is how to think about attracting beneficial wildlife to your property. Develop the ecosystem and think about the needs of the animal. When it comes to wildlife management, you can learn a lot from looking at something like a squirrel and understanding that the most high-level priority of any animal is its survival from predation. That's hardwired into any small creature that can be eaten by anything else. And the squirrel will teach you that this way. What does a squirrel need to survive? Water, food, and nesting areas. If I take a wide open field and put walnuts, pecans, sunflower seeds, you name it, and a big water tank and a couple poles with perfect nesting boxes for squirrels, but it's out in the middle of a 40-acre field and it's like dead center and all the trees are as far away as possible, you'll probably never see a squirrel out there because that squirrel is not going to be in that open field for that long. He's afraid and he should be. He's dead squirrel. Between coyotes, hawks, other critters that'll eat a squirrel, Charlie the dog, whatever, he knows he's dead if he's that in the open for that long. There's too many things that can run faster. He's got to have the ability to get to cover and get up a tree. And those nesting boxes are not good enough. If you even see squirrels do stupid things, if you ever see a dog tree a squirrel and there's no other trees around, if that dog keeps harassing that squirrel in that tree, a lot of times that squirrel will come out of that tree. And end up either the dog gets them or if you're hunting, you shoot them. If there's other trees around, sometimes the squirrel will do what's called timbering out, which means they'll go tree to tree to tree and keep going. And sometimes they'll just hide. But for some reason, if there's no other trees around, it screws with his hired wiring. I'm not safe here. And he'll bail when he was safe. All he had to do was stay flat and hide. I've seen it here where we have you know enough field that they come out in the field to get to the bird feeders. They will make the run. I've seen the dogs get them up in a tree, and that squirrel could just sit up there for hours and not give a shit. And I've seen Charlie kill one because it got it couldn't accept there wasn't some place to go next, so it ended up bailing out, coming down, and he got it. Right, so that's how birds are going to work too. They need the cover and they need the perching spaces. That's really what to focus on, and make sure there's a diverse habitat, and you'll have more birds than you know what to do with. Here's one that came to me from a bunch of people. Um, there's a company called SpaceX. Uh, they're in Texas, and their goal is to go to Mars and do it before the government does. Uh, they're run by a, a gentleman named Elon Musk, and they are seeking to commercialize outer space, to go to Mars and establish a civilization, a noble goal. And they have a job board. You can go work for SpaceX. They're a pretty big group, as you might imagine, to put... Rockets into outer space, uh, you need people. Well, on their job board, and like I said, a ton of you guys sent this to me, um, they have a position for, available, and I won't read all the propaganda for the company, but the position is farmer. Yep, SpaceX wants a farmer. Now, most of the people that sent this to me probably didn't read it, and they say they wanted a farmer for a mission to Mars. I don't think so. Here's why. Responsibilities, plan finances and production to maintain farm progress against budget parameters. Perform practical farm activities, including driving tractors, operating machinery, spraying fields. 
produce equipment and supplies, tractors, implements, uh, fertilizers, and seed, perform or arrange the maintenance or repair of machinery and equipment, maintain, monitor, and perform actions as necessary to increase quality of crop yield, locate and manage outside contractors when necessary, harvesting and aerial spraying, understand the implications of the weather and make contingency plans, apply health and safety standards across the farm, as well as ensure the farm activities comply with government regulations, Use an electronic spreadsheet to keep financial records up to date. Other duties is assigned. Basic qualifications, minimum of 10 years of row crop farming experience in Central Texas, which shall include working knowledge of every process required for crop production in the region. Experience in repair and preservation and maintenance of John Deere agricultural equipment. I don't see that going to Mars. High school diploma or general education degree. Preferred experience and skills. Class A commercial driver's license positive relationship with suppliers and contractors in the area, Texas applicator license or sufficient requirements necessary to obtain such. So what do I think they're doing? I think that they probably have land around their facility that they're paying tax on, that they want to move into agricultural production so that they can maintain the land with an agricultural exemption, and they need a farmer to do that. But it does make you think, if you are going to go to Mars and you are going to produce food, and you are going to grow things, how do you do it, and what's your biggest limitation? Think about that. What's your biggest limitation in the growing of food on Mars, or on a spacecraft going to Mars? It's probably not what you think. It's microbes. It's microbes. The health of soil lies in its microbiology. The biggest challenge into terraforming a planet, even under glass, would be to develop the microbiology that we take for granted here on Earth. Just something to think about. But it's interesting to see that a giant corporation trying to build a rocket to go to Mars is hiring a farmer, probably for the purpose of avoiding taxation on their property, because they probably ain't paying no income tax, because they probably ain't making a profit. So it's one of those taxes you've You can't avoid it. If you own property, the government taxes it. So some way to at least mitigate that. That's, that's my guess here. Plus, if the long-term mission of this company is genuine, and I have no reason to doubt it, then eventually you have to do that, and developing farming expertise may not be a bad idea. So this I would imagine, though. This job description, <laughs> I bet there's not a single person at SpaceX that knows what the hell they're doing with a farm. And somebody got the idea to do this and put it through the board or whatever, and they said, okay, let's do this. And what they've done is they went to HR and said, we need a farmer to farm this acreage over here, write up a job description and get us some candidates in here and interview them. And somebody in HR went to a job description for this type of farmer, copied, pasted, and edited, and, and tuned it, and then decided that... <laughs> Did a farmer with 10 years of row cropping farming experience in the Central Texas area would include uh, with uh, the working knowledge of every process required for crop rotation would come to work as an employee, which may or may not happen. Who knows? Uh, but they may find getting what they're looking for to be a little bit difficult. I'm just saying every process required for crop production in the region. Uh, what crop? Now they see you can tell right there that the person that wrote it doesn't even know what they're writing. They don't know what they're writing. You want to produce cotton? There's a certain set of processes to do that. You want to produce soybeans? 
Do you want a, a vegetable, conventional vegetable farm? This is South Texas. We can grow the hell out of peppers here. You want to grow peppers? You want to grow beans? You want to grow corn? Do you want a large-scale monoculture-style polyculture? Meaning you have like, you know, blocks of different things. What, what do you want? Do you want to grow hay just for the exemption? It's always different. Whoever wrote this has no idea what they're doing. None. And understand this many times. This is So where does the lesson come here? When you're applying for jobs, understand that most of the time when you see a job on a job board like this, the person who wrote the job description doesn't have a freaking clue. And they probably did it because they were told to by somebody else that actually wants to hire you. So don't let job descriptions be ultimatums for you. Tailor your response to them so you can get in to talk to the person that actually knows sort of kind of what the hell is going on. And I imagine this is a really teachable moment here. Most of the time, a company hiring somebody has somebody that really knows what they're looking for, and if it's a sizable organization, it goes through the HR filter like this, and it's it's all BS, and they're just they're there to do their thing. Um, and and the person that's in that's actually doing the hiring would be better suited to circumvent HR or write their own job description or whatever. But many times they can't. There's procedures in place in the company to make them cog like. But often, many times, you have this very situation. No, not a space exploration company hiring a farmer. A company needing something done that they don't know how to do at all, that no one knows how to do. When I worked for Sage Telecom, that's what that's how I got that job. I went in there, and I flat told them after just a couple minutes of being interviewed, the reason you're interviewing for this position is you don't have anybody here that has any idea how to develop a web-based campaign to sell this company's products and services online. You don't have anybody here in any way that knows how to do that at all. So let me tell you how we could do that. That might sound arrogant, but I got an offer really freaking quick because I recognized that they didn't know how to do it. And I stopped being reactive to their questions, which were pointless questions, that you could tell were just whatever they could figure out to ask, and said, here's your problem. Here's your solution. Here's how we implement it. Here's the timeline it's going to take. These are the resources you're going to have to put into it to make it work. These are the results you can expect if it's executed properly and the resources are available. Now, if you'd like me to do that for you, I can. And if you don't want to do it that way, then this is not the right position for me. Because that's just what it's going to take to make this work. The farmer that gets this job will take that approach. He'll come in and go, oh, you want to farm this, eh? Why? What, what is your goal here? You want to make money on the farm? You want to break even on the farm? You want to get attacked? What do you want? Okay, here's how you're going to do that. This is going to go this way. This is going to go that way. This is going to go. And there's, there's no one there that could tell him he's wrong. I guarantee you right now. Because if they had anybody in there that could tell a guy he was wrong, this job description would look differently. And this is easy because it's a rocket company hiring a farmer. And no, not one to live on a shuttle and go to Mars. So you know that that's probable. You'd be surprised how many places these types of opportunities exist. In a, in a world where the market's gotten so competitive we're told you can't even find a job, you spot one of these. You tailor a solution. You walk in like you don't give a damn if you get the job or not. And you deliver the solution. And you give the most powerful word in marketing and sales that I taught you about today in the history segment, which is basically a form of no, if you don't want to make this commitment then I don't believe I can get this done for you. 
And I don't believe anybody else can do so either. So while I think I can do this for you, this is what it's going to take. And if it's not what you're really looking to do, please tell me so I can go do that somewhere else. And you're going to have people sitting in front. I don't care if it's being a farmer for SpaceX or an Internet marketer for a phone company. You're going to end up with people sitting in front of you with their mouth slightly agape going, holy shit. That's how you compete in this current market. So just a little thought there for you. On that note, I am wrapping up today now at this point. I do want to remind you uh, that we are still looking for backers for our Indiegogo campaign for Gen Forward. Gen Forward is a, is a platform uh, that, by the way, by the time the, the Indiegogo is over, we're going to have the beta release to all of the people that have contributed. We're, we're, we're probably 50% to a beta right now. We started development right before Christmas. And, and we, we've got a great developer working with my, my lead programmer and they're doing a fantastic job. So, but Gen Forward is designed so that you can preserve the memories of today for your future generations tomorrow. But it's also designed so that the questions that your children, your grandchildren, your wife, your husband, et cetera, have about where you came from could be answered today in a way that's a lot easier to do sometimes than these direct conversations. We're moving into a world where people communicate online. And a lot of times people will say in a letter or a blog post really special things that they just can't figure out how to say face to face. That's becoming more true. And my view is that Gen Forward is a way that we can do that for today and preserve today's lessons for tomorrow so that future generations will know what it looked like when we were fighting for liberty, whether we'd won or lost that fight. Because either way, it's going to be up to them to fight as well. They're either going to have to fight to regain the fight we lost, or they're going to have to fight to preserve that which we've preserved for them. And they're not going to know all of these things, because you're not going to be there with them. And they're not going to weed through your Facebook page or whatever for a thousand posts to figure out what you were all about. This is an organized, concise way to improve, improve families today and improve families tomorrow. The other thing that it is, is it really is a way to improve yourself. If you're willing to answer questions about your past, your future, your lessons in life, if you're willing to give this five minutes a day, it will make you a better person. I believe that. That's why I'm building it. So it's the new year. There's all kinds of resolutions like getting in shape. Worst time of year. Gyms are crowded. It's cold outside. Nobody wants to go out and everybody just ate a ton of food. Right, But one thing we, we can make a really great resolution for this time of year is simply to, to try to do better for ourselves and our families. I think this is a platform that can help you do that. You can learn more about it and all the stuff we're doing with our Forces for Good campaign at GenForward.com. There is about two weeks left uh, to be part of uh, the initial funding and to get basically a membership that people will pay more for in the future at a very significant discount. And for those of you that are like, well, is this going to really happen? Yeah, we're there. I mean, we're not done, but we have the development timeline. We've got the developer working. We've got a Gantt chart. We know exactly that, you know, right about the time the Indiegogo ends, we're going to be doing beta, uh, and then we'll do like a small beta for, for the contributors, uh, the, probably the bigger contributors at first, and then we'll open it up to everybody, and then as soon as we've stabilized the beta, we'll open it up to the whole world. And uh, remember, hatgen4.com, which now goes to the Indiegogo page, not only can you sign up for this, but, you know, even at the $50 level, 
uh, you get a membership and you get something to give away to other people in your life that you care about and want to help make this improvement as well. So little commercial here at the end. Um, if you want to know what you can do uh, in return for all of the effort that we put into the Survival Podcast, consider backing Gen Forward. Because my goal is to make people more free and more liberated in their own lives and improve the lives of individuals and their families and their communities. And I believe that starts at the individual level. And that's why I came up with the idea. It's not just a way for Jack to have another business, uh, though that is a nice thing. I'm not going to, I mean, I am, a, I am an anarcho-capitalist, right? But I believe that companies and businesses and entrepreneurs can do really good things for society. And I believe it's the best success formula going forward. I ask you to consider being part of it with me. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares.